the other thing about Bobby is, you know, people talk about how he had female love interests, but then you look at who they were and it's like, yeah, mm-hmm. every homosexual in the world wants to date Polaris. Are you kidding? <laughs> right. <laughs> Dating Polaris makes you Dating gay. Dating Polaris like... <laughs> is gay. X-Men, X-Men. In the 21st century, evil mutants led by Magneto aim to destroy the world. Only hope is X-Men. Welcome to Cerebro, the X-Men podcast where a homo and his friends dig deep into the history of Homo Superior. I'm your host, Connor Goldsmith, and with me today is writer and academic Anthony Oliveira, the only recent Marvel writer I've personally had sex with. Wow, starting spicy, starting spicy. (laughs) Tony and I dated long before you'd ever heard of either of us, and back in the day, we had quite the following on Twitter, so I felt like the fans would want to know it was a reunion episode. Marvel fans will know him best from the War of the Realms story, My Drag Brunch with Loki, and the Lords of Empire Emperor Hulkling one-shot, both of which starred the Young Avengers characters Hulkling and Wiccan. Anthony, thank you so much for being my guest. How are you doing today? Thank you for having me. I am, you know, it's, I feel like every episode of your podcast begins with I know, the because, person making yeah, a loud there's moan. no, right. <laughs> there's no, no one's I having a good time. insert my loud moan here, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Well, you look good. Thank you. The viewers will not see our Skype no. viewing thing, which is good. It, that way they don't know you're lying. I look like <laughs> I look like quarantine. <laughs> I, I wouldn't say I'm lying. I would say I am being thoughtful and right. narrating something that no one ever will actually look at. So as far as right. the mind's eye knows, you look absolutely stunning at the moment. And then let me return. Connor looks great. And also he has two solved Rubik's Cubes behind oh, him. Oh, wow. So... Yeah, they know that's a lie. So we know he's brilliant, I can barely fold towels, much less solve a Rubik's Cube. (laughs) So this week, I actually don't really have any notes before we get started. Although I would like to note, because it's extremely funny, that the day the Danny Moonstar episode dropped... And Darcy and I spent all that time talking about how we weren't sure if she was still a Valkyrie and we were really hoping we'd see the Pegasus again soon. That literally an hour after the episode dropped, Marvel solicited the King in Black tie-in with the Valkyries where Danny's on her Pegasus on the cover. So I'd like to believe that we manifested that somehow, even though obviously (laughs) the art and everything on that was done months ago. But it still feels... um, synchronous it was pointed out on twitter that i undersold part of danny's character file in that i noted that she regained her sanity after the battle with the beyonder by having a meeting with thor and i did not note that at the time thor is transformed into a frog which is why (laughs) danny is able to speak with him because of her psychic connection with the animal kingdom oh of course I left that out on purpose because while it is completely insane and wonderful, and uh, that is actually a Thor storyline I've read because it intersected with the X-Men stories, I do feel that these character files are supposed to sort of explain things for new readers, and I don't want to (laughs) just bring in... By it's the way, a Thor nice was little a surprise when someone picks up the issue. Right, yeah. yeah. There was also a question raised. So here's just like a little how the sausage is made as to why I didn't really mention the Rosenberg run on Uncanny or New Mutants Dead Souls or other more recent stuff. I actually did bring up Dead Souls, but we had an audio issue and I ended up cutting that bit. So there's a little behind the scenes for you. 
I enjoyed Dead Souls and it's, I think it's worth reading if you're a New Mutants fan. But again, these segments, I try not to keep them longer than 20 minutes at the most. And I want <laughs> them to be a way to catch up mostly on the classic material, which can be harder to find, and then to jump right into the stuff that's happening now. The runs that were happening right before House of X, unless something really major happened in them, I'm going to kind of gloss over to some extent just because House of X and Powers of Ten were such a deck clearing and a lot of those storylines didn't continue directly into the new run. So I just don't want to confuse people. I also feel that if something came out in 2018 or 2019 and someone wants to read it, it's not going to be that hard for them to find it. Whereas the J.M. DiMatteis Iceman miniseries from 1984 that I'm sure we'll discuss here <laughs> is a little harder to get uh, your hands better. on. Yeah, beautiful. So that's sort of what I try to emphasize in those. That's really it for this week in terms of notes. So just to jump right in, Anthony, I love to talk about your affection for this character, Bobby Drake, Iceman, who is the character we are here to talk about today. <laughs> Which you do not share, is that correct? Like, that's, you're not a... So, here's the thing about Bobby. I appreciate that he exists. I always find him right. to be a useful or enjoyable addition to a, a roster. But <laughs> right. I have never felt super drawn to him. I do like that he's an Irish Jew, a gay Irish right. Jew. Yes, yeah, you too. I enjoy that. In that. But I don't feel super connected to him on a general level. Uh huh. I mean, I'm glad that you were free to do this episode and that you expressed an interest in talking about Bobby because when I'm thinking about tortured gay Catholics, you are sort of <laughs> my first port of Nailed call. Nailed it. Yeah. <laughs> so it seemed to uh, me. Yeah, let me tell you why I love Bobby yeah. and I'll tell you why you hate Bobby. Jump in. Take it away. Let me tell you about yourself. <laughs> <laughs> um, first, I'll tell you why you hate Bobby. You hate Bobby because you are the world's biggest Claremontian. And Chris Claremont has no interest in Bobby Drake. None. He does not care about Iceman. As soon as he gets him off the page, he does. He comes back for like that one thing where he fights Arcade. Yeah. And it's just like, I'll use my ice powers. And that's it. Like that's, yeah. That is as far as Chris Claremont is interested in him. And the other reason you don't like Bobby is because you're not a 90s kid. That's absolutely <laughs> it. Yeah. See, like you and I, I've been, I'm a, an avid fan of you and the podcast. Thank you, um, darling. And <laughs> when you dropped out is the period that I am obsessed with. Right. Whereas... Before the 90s is like, I didn't have your dad's world famous collection. It's not I world just... <laughs> famous. It's just very comprehensive. Didn't you say it was ranked? It is. Like it a, has, his his yeah. issues have been ranked and like he's right. on a list yeah. somewhere. Whereas my, my parents, and this is where we get into like the nightmare of how me and Bobby have very similar lives. Yes. <laughs> well, I was reading that miniseries. And I was just like, ooh, I'm excited to talk about this miniseries with oh, Anthony. Oh, that miniseries. Yeah. Um, so like I didn't, I, my parents call everything I like the X-Men's or the Buffy's mm -hmm. and how I should not care about them. So when I picked up X-Men comics, it was because of the cartoon. And then when I was like, oh, God, I need to go into the store, I started reading X-Men when Executioner's Song was coming out. Right. Because they were easy to find. Because back then, Executioner's Song was being bagged in those blue poly bags. Yes. So you would get your playing card with it. So I was like, oh, my God, so easy to find. So, like, the 90s were it for me. Like, Strife 
and like the X-Men number one. You initially and, wanted to do Strife. When I said, do you want to come on my podcast? What character? And, uh, you, and Tony was like, how about Strife? And I was like, I love. Yeah. I feel like maybe you can come back like three years into the podcast to talk about Strife. Sure. But I haven't even done cable yet. I can't. Yeah. I can't do Strife. You should do Strife right after the cable. Ep- I was like, I had was very interested in pitching something about Strife to the X-Men office. And then the Madeline Pryor stuff came through about how he, he clones aren't allowed. About how clones aren't allowed, right? Well, we can't talk too much about Madeline Pryor because that's all I want to pitch the X office. Right, so. right. <laughs> Let's but, both, so, like, hope springs eternal. Let's me, both, you know, highlight some clones yeah. at some point well, in our, I mean, in our the, lives. The cool thing about Strife is his insistence he's not a clone. Like, that's what I love. <laughs> yes, no, his, his, I'm the real Nathan. Clone. Yeah, right. Yeah, no, exactly. exactly. <laughs> but Bobby becomes fascinating in the period of the 90s, sort of the post-Claremont period. Mm -hmm. He kind of migrates back onto the center stage. Although he always misses the, like, he missed Claremont. Morrison didn't get to touch him. Well, that's what I was going to say is my second favorite run is the Morrison run, and he doesn't (laughs) appear in it at all. He was busy in Chuck Austin's Uncanny. Oh, boy. Yeah, he was in the Austin book. Um, (laughs) And then, like, he's not in the Whedon run. So, like, he's always an also-ran. He's always on stage B, you know? Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) But I love this character because because he's always on stage B, because the spotlight is never quite so bright, he's exactly where he wants to be, right? Like, he doesn't want you to notice him, and writers largely don't, which is why even though he had this incredible, like, he's literally there from the beginning, yeah. and it's like no one bothered to look at him. No. And, that to me, and that's why uniquely, I mean... I'm not going to overstate this, but Bobby Drake is one of the most fascinating and interesting characters of the 20th century. <laughs> because... <laughs> oh, not to oversell it. I love that. Defend your thesis, Dr. Oliveira. Because <laughs> as soon as he said, as soon as Brian Michael Bendis put the words in Gene's mouth, not yeah. in Bobby's mouth, which we can talk about, you're gay. All of a sudden, 40, 50, 60 years of like locks tumbled into place. Like, oh, yeah, that was the story the whole time. Well, that is when he became interesting to me, because as I said in earlier episodes, particularly in the Emma Frost episode with Alex Abad Santos, you know, I caught that when I was a kid, the Emma Frost storyline where she implies oh, yeah. that he's gay. And my father and I talked about that years ago because he caught it also. And my dad <laughs> had never caught that any of the women were fucking each other in the Claremont run. So he's not... Not someone who picks up queer right. subtext like by nature, but he certainly got that because it, it sort of hits you in the face in those yeah. early 90s stories. And then as my father pointed out when I told him I was doing this episode, he was like, you know, it's funny. I'm sure Lee and Kirby didn't mean it, but in that very first issue in 1963, oh he's the <laughs> only one who has no interest in Jean Grey and makes fun of the others for being so horny for the girl. Yeah, he's like, a girl, I don't care. I'm glad I'm not a wolf like you fellas, <laughs> like or whatever it is. He's he like, literally exits frame. Yeah. They're all like leering out the window at her. And, and he's he, like, whatever. He's, he's like, like voice- a boot that's half <laughs> off stage already because he's... He's not interested. Yeah. And even before that, he enter his the first time we see Bobby Drake, he is spinning around a stripper pole. He certainly he is. is. <laughs> he enters fabulous. Yeah. I think it's supposed way. to be a yeah. fireman's pole, but that's also pretty gay. Right. Yeah. Firemen don't typically spin. That no. And so and true. like the aestheticization of a fireman's pole is very like. FDNY calendar vibe. Well, this is the other element of Bobby Drake as a character is like in the same way that I grew up in the 90s when Peter Parker could not stay clothed to save his life because he was constantly covered in black slime. It's like, oh no, my clothes came off. The sonic waves made Eddie Brock naked. Like, 
<laughs> Maximum Carnage. Yeah. It was a good time. Oh, I had my gay awakening. Between all the nudity and Shriek and the existence of Shriek, <laughs> right. Maximum Carnage was, was basically a, a, a Fran good Drescher gay as fun a time. Yeah, she's great. <laughs> but that so that aesthetic of like Bobby Drake's aesthetic is very gay. He tends to manifest in a state of disrobedness yeah. on stage a lot. His costume's um, a speedo. Yeah, a speedo and go-go boots. Yeah. Like it doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't really get gayer. Get than... much gayer. <laughs> And I don't mean this. I don't mean this flippantly, right? Like he has an appeal to the queer male gaze, right? Like it's like physique pictorial or like a Bob Miser photograph. I mean, he's not buff that way. That's what Colossus was for. But he has that sort of posing in one of those magazines that pretended it wasn't gay in the '40s quality. Oh my God, yes. And even artists who don't usually do male beefcake feel a certain compulsion to it when it comes to Bobby. Like yeah. When he first meets the Human Torch, he has like a an extended sequence where he's like slowly melts, it's like a three panel sequence where he slowly dissolves. He's his constantly ice form. getting melted into near nudity. <laughs> yeah, it's fascinating, and it's particularly as you note because Claremont didn't have a ton of interest in him. Claremont was constantly doing that to men and women, but usually they would get like tied up or they're like put in bondage gear by a bad guy or whatever. And it's very specific with Bobby that throughout X Factor, throughout everything, it's like he is constantly, oh no, my powers, in the way that like (laughs) Wonder Woman in the Golden Age is like, oh no, I've been tied up, my powers. And so there's like a plot excuse for it, but mostly it's to get them into sort of a sexy pose. My God, the whole, the first few issues of X Factor are pure, like almost ridiculous beefcake cheesecake-y images. Yeah. Like, those boys are barely clothed. Yeah, and it's weird, because that was Bob Layton. It's not even like, like, once Wheezy takes over... Oh, no, but at first it's Butch... Uh, what's his name? Butch Geese? Is that how you say it? I meant the writing. Oh, yeah. I don't know. Who knows how much the Marvel method was in place on that one, but... Well, yeah, that was definitely a book <laughs> that was partially crafted by committee. Right. Much to Claremont's dismay. Uh, <laughs> and you feel it, but damn, there's some there's some pretty boys in, like right from the beginning. Yeah. Angel and his speedos. Well, Angel is always. I mean, as I've said on this podcast, the John Byrne splash page in Dark Phoenix Saga, where Warren is in his like Jane Fonda jazzercise outfit and comes down <laughs> from the ceiling, and his chest hair is spilling uh, out of his tank top, is a true gay awakening moment, at least for me. I I was eight or something when I read that, and I was like, uh oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, oh dear. And the thing that's funny is that's also clearly Bobby Drake's experience of his life. Right. Right. Like he had to hang around in the showers with Warren Worthington III (laughs) all the time. Which is the one of the very first things his younger self. I mean, we'll get to how complicated that Bendis this is, does. Yeah, but one of the very first things Bendis has the younger self ask the older self is, "Do you think Warren's hot too?" And he's like, "All the time." Of course, like, duh. Since, and it's there in the original. It's issues. absolutely like, um, there. Is it X Men thirteen? It's the one where they're about to fight the Sentinels, and Bobby is helping Warren strap down his wings. Yep. And and their conversation is Bobby being like, "I know the exact <laughs> thing you're talking about because it's deeply sexual to me." Oh yeah, he's like helping him. He's helping him put on his underwear. His harness yeah yeah and they're talking and bobby's like would it be so bad if everyone knew about us and warren's like never mind like (laughs) (laughs) it's like a very celluloid closet kind of moment yeah yeah and stanley is i mean and this i always almost cry when i say this because when stanley who obviously was 
into his dotage by the time this started happening. Yeah. But still, like, irascible Stanley. I love the clips of his assistants being like, please don't say that, Stan. He's like, never mind. Well, whenever someone would ask him, like, should Peter Parker be bisexual? He was like, I don't think so. And I was like, he's 90 years old. Do we, can we stop asking this man? <laughs> but the thing is, when they told him Bobby was gay in the comics now, I, I highly suggest people check out the clip because what he yeah, says this was is, great. he said, I didn't know that. Yeah. It's like this touching, like the collaborative element to Stan Lee was there. And it's like, it's not in his stuff, but actually Bobby was written in the closet from very early. Like, yes. We talk about Bendis doing the work, but Marjorie Liu tried to do it. I talked to Marjorie at a conference. I think Chuck Austin tried to do it. Chuck Austin tried to do it. I usually do the reader questions at the end, but there is one question I want to read right now because it's what we're talking about. Oh, yeah. So Jojo Matt, hi, Jojo, Jojo, writes, Hi there. I'm a fairly recent Marvel fan and have been learning more about the original X-Men cast as it's the more recent mutant characters that have interested me more. I don't know much about Bobby other than his mutant power and his sexuality. I didn't grow up with any comics prior to the 2010s, and by that point, I already knew that he was gay. However, I understand that many people who grew up reading the original X-Men runs interpreted Bobby as gay before it became canon. So my question has two parts. One, what was it about Bobby's characterization that flagged that he wasn't heterosexual? And two, how did these interpretations of being different go beyond the mutant metaphor? As in, what was the difference between being different in a gay way versus being different in a mutant way regarding his character? Thanks. So that's sort of what we were talking about there, because so many different writers, like you said, Marjorie Liu sort of hinted at it. I think Chuck Austin in the storyline with Jean-Paul was absolutely implying that. Yeah, that's totally what that's about. The story that I was talking about that both my dad and I in the 90s read and clocked me as a child and him as a usually pretty oblivious (laughs) straight man was the Scott Lobdell 1994 story with Emma. Right. So it's something that's been around for a long yeah. time. I mean, like Scott Lobdell is obviously a problematic yeah. writer. Uh, Jay and Miles have a great episode about dealing with what it means to inherit Lobdell's history. But yeah, uh, yeah that issue, his whole 90s run is very queer coded for Bobby. While we're talking about problematic people, I did my dissertation on uh, Shakespeare and there's this Nazi scholar who was reading Shakespeare, Carl Schmidt, and he said, the key to understanding great works of art is they have something missing in the middle of them. So Hamlet, for example, can't talk about the fact that Gertrude killed old Hamlet. Turn of the screw, you can't talk about the actual history of the ghosts, right. which the new TV show does. Um, <laughs> I haven't seen me, it yet, but Oliver Jackson Cohen <laughs> is my Sephardic king, and uh, I will probably Oh, he's so beautiful. He couldn't play Bobby, but he's so beautiful. No, but he wants to play Moon Knight, and I started oh, that yeah. on Twitter, so I want to take credit for that. He's Egyptian Jewish. It's perfect. That is really good. We should talk about who to cast. But um, yeah, we'll get there. The whole thing is like, Bobby, you can't, his queerness was unspeakable for right. most of the run. Like he is basically, he stops being accidentally like cute boy in go-go boots and starts being like, no, the, and of course, queerness and authorial intent are in permanent tension. Right. But writers start writing him as closeted basically in 1985. Well, I would even say in 1984 in the Demetrius miniseries oh yeah and that i reread it before this because it's so bizarre that i was like i have to reread that so that i remember the plot (laughs) and what's fascinating about that four issue miniseries is that it is 100 percent four issues about how he's gay yeah yeah and it also says at the top editor-in-chief jim shooter which right. <laughs> is one of those things that's interesting because Demetrius was, I mean, I, I know we'd have to ask him, but it seems pretty clear to me that's what he's implying. And he's doing it under the aegis of an editor in chief who explicitly said that there could be no gay characters in Marvel. 
Right. And so Bobby has this love interest named Marge, which itself feels like it might be coding. <laughs> and she has like hair down to her ass and is a cosmic being. So like, I mean, there's really uh, the other thing about Bobby is, you know, people talk about how he had female love interests, but then you look at who they were and it's like, yeah, mm-hmm. every homosexual in the world wants to date Polaris. Are you kidding? Right. <laughs> Dating Polaris makes you Dating gayer. Polaris like... is gay. Like, it's yeah. the gayest thing about Alex Summers, who typically is a pretty hetero yes. character, but the fact that he's constantly dating Polaris and Madeline Pryor is right. really gay. That and his weird relationship to the living monolith. That's, the, yeah. The, uh, he constantly gets tied up by this. Yeah, I mean, the Summers <laughs> brothers have all kinds of sublimated queer sexuality that's yeah. its own sort of fascinating thing. And in many ways, I think... The res- the reason the Iceman miniseries exists is because of how he's characterized in the Defenders yes. run with Cloud. Um, where with Cloud, yeah, he's so. And a lot of people have not read the Defenders run. I've only read the parts <laughs> that Iceman is in, but I reread it before this, and I was like, oh my gosh, like it's all right here. So, so why don't you explain you Cloud to the <laughs> listeners? Yeah, honestly, no one read the Defenders. That's why it got canceled. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. Um, the Defenders itself is conceptually a strange. Like, how do you explain what it is? It's like. Well, they're a superhero team. They're the Avengers run out of Denver. They're right. like the Avengers run out of like uh, Angel's living room. Basically. Love Moon Dragon. <laughs> speaking of homosexuals, oh yeah, a lot of Moon Dragon content. Um, well, actually, Moon Dragon's important to the Cloud story. So Cloud, someone I was talking, tweeting panels from this run earlier this week, and someone described them as Poochie from The Simpsons, and it's kind of true. So Cloud is this extra-dimensional alien being who manifests, and this is all like a retcon, but manifests as like a teammate of the defenders and basically they have cloud powers they can be a cloud and what how eventually that starts manifesting in the book is that cloud kind of chooses a gender presentation in the comic and at first they're presenting female but as their attraction to of all characters moon dragon grows they start presenting as male <laughs> which is like barking up attract- the wrong tree sweetheart <laughs> right. but you know everyone in the defenders is barking up the wrong tree yeah. so iceman as usual because he is a gay man, is um, projecting an attraction onto the most unavailable person on the team, which is Cloud presenting female, and then becomes, he has like a terrible crisis, like an existential crisis when Cloud starts... When Cloud is like, actually, I'm a man. Right. (laughs) And they have a great issue where it's basically a one-shot. I really suggest checking it out. It's, um, I think it's 142. Yeah, Defenders 142, where Hank McCoy is giving a talk at a college campus against Senator Kelly. And Cloud, Hank, and Iceman go to campus. They meet a mutant who's displeased by Hank's, like, neoliberalist policies of, like, integration and assimilation. As Bobby is confronting Cloud about this, like, recent gender change situation. And Cloud is like, I'm not into you, and also I'm not always a girl. Right. Uh, So if that's a problem for you, it's not going to work. And apparently people started writing in so much about this that I feel like the Iceman miniseries, which is four issues, is basically talking about this without talking about this. And again, it's doing it not just in the story. Oblivion, basically the bad guys is like cosmic threat. Well, the bad guy is just like a psychological condition, right? Like the bad guy is Bobby thinking he isn't real or isn't valid. And it's just an expression of that on the page. And the real issue that that miniseries has is here's what happened with the original X-Men, just to to go back to Claremont for a second before we jump back into the Defenders, because the Defenders was an attempt to find something to do with those characters, right? Right. They're like warehoused. 
Right. Like the original X-Men book in the 60s was not a popular book and it got canceled in 1970. And until Giant Size in 1975, they just did reprints. And so after that, the X-Men would make occasional cameo appearances in other books. But for the most part, those characters were pretty retired. Beast got spun off into the Avengers eventually. And when Ween and Cockrum came in to do Giant Size, they ushered all of the original X-Men off the page to introduce the new characters that they had spent so much time developing. Claremont's favorite character from the 60s run when he was an editorial assistant at Marvel was Jean. So he brought her back and obviously then made her a much more important character than she ever had been before. But the boys were shuffled off to Buffalo, essentially. Right. <laughs> I mean, it's funny. Iceman becomes an accountant. And my dad, who just retired but spent many years as a general counsel lawyer at a big accounting firm, always says, like, you know, I could have tried to become a Supreme Court justice, but I decided to be an accountant. It is, to <laughs> me, the ultimate thing you could do instead of something exciting is, like, be an right. accountant. That it is how I think of it feel in my feel like, with all respect to your dad, hi, dad. Like, yeah, no, <laughs> it does. It, it's the job that a writer thinks of. As the board. Like the most closeted right, job, right? Yeah. Like, um, I actually think the parallel character to me in a lot of ways for Bobby as like a the quintessential '90s kind of character is actually Chandler Bing, where it's oh like <laughs> also gay, right? Like Chandler's. I mean, people are always like Friends is super homophobic. Friends is super it homophobic, is, but... but it's because its writers are all gay, and like the show Can't is explicitly right, yeah. about like what happens if you don't just get married when you're 21. And you spend your 30s hanging out with your friends. And one of the anxieties of that in the 90s is, well, I, that means I'm gay. Right. Right? Like, And so Chandler is like the manifestation of that. So he has a job that even he can't describe. Right. And he's like living with this roommate that he may, as Avenue Q sort of develops it, may or may not have feelings about. And is basically romantic or not the primary love interest of his life. And that's kind of Bobby's story too, mm -hmm. right? Like the whole, he goes off stage for a bit and becomes an accountant speaks to that like attempt to normalize absolutely and then basically they were like what the fuck do we do with these characters because <laughs> beast was on the avengers so he was handled gene was back on the x-men team with scott and now you have angel and iceman who were just not popular characters in terms of like right. the big fan following it was like well what do we do with these characters so what they ended up doing with those characters in 75 not long after giant size was create the champions which was a very short-lived i think it's 17 issues book where it's angel and iceman and a couple d-list marvel superheroes <laughs> i mean like the black widow is now because of the marvel cinematic universe a very big character but at the time right. black widow was sort of an also ran avengers character it's kind of hard for kids to remember like if you didn't grow up during this period the avengers were nothing no one the avengers were absolutely like... nothing until the iron man movie literally <laughs> who is iron man who is captain series. america like no <laughs> yeah. one gave a shit yeah yeah it was the x-men and spider-man those were the marvel characters yes. people cared about and if you cared about an avenger it was like thor maybe right you knew captain america was a thing but you never you read knew it. who the hulk was but you yeah, never bought yeah, that exactly. book <laughs> i was talking about this on the storm episode because black panther was nothing in terms of a brand until very recently and now of course he's an enormous brand mm -hmm. but when he and storm were married to one another storm was one of the biggest characters in comics and black panther was not despite the right. many attempts of writers like christopher priest some storm 
stories that were very, very good, but it just, the Avengers books were never super popular. So the champions was these two X-Men nobody cares about. <laughs> Black Widow, who's a character that is like just kind of doing her thing. Ghost Rider, who again is a character that just hadn't quite landed. Hercules, who's another sort of also ran type of character. And then they introduced Darkstar, who is right. much like Polaris <laughs> and Emma right. Frost and every other woman <laughs> that Bobby Drake is attracted to, kind of a drag queeny character. Yes, her hair is bigger than Shriek's. Yeah, it's enormous. <laughs> she looks like Christy Brinkley, but Soviet. Right. In an extremely large wig. Yeah, and Bobby goes straight for it. And she's not really feeling it because he's gay. Oh my God. I mean, like, that is the thing. Even Opal Tanaka. Yes. Opal is another one of those situations where it's like one of the many women who breaks up with Bobby who's like, you're aware you're not into me. Right. right? It's like, like she... yeah, because the thing is like Opal is an annoying character in my opinion. I think in general right. that non-powered love interests are really hard to make work in X-Men books particularly. I think that in a solo book like Superman, you can have Lois Lane be a really important character and Spider-Man and Mary Jane really worked in the 90s. But I think that in a team book, a character that isn't powered or a superhero, like they could be a non-powered superhero like Black Widow or whatever. But if they don't have any superhero role, uh -huh. especially in the X-Men where so much of it is about we're special because of this minority thing we have. Right. It's really difficult. And the only characters where it ever really worked at all were like with Maddie Pryor, they were writing Cyclops out. That was the point. Right. Well, that's the only time it can work is when they're leaving. The tension is about, I need you to give up this life. Right. Like you could have a normal life if you like, that's what Mary Jane is for. That's what Lois is about. Um, Clark's humanity. Yes. As opposed right? to him being It Superman. doesn't work for Bobby if the, if he's just going to be on the team. And similarly, like Charlotte Jones, who's a fun character, didn't work for Angel in the 90s either. And they had him hook up with Psylocke instead. You have the same problem with Trish Tilby, honestly. She worked more than most of the others because she was basically their attempt to kind of do a Lois Lane thing. And because she was this investigative reporter, she would be... <laughs> caught up in adventure stories well and the fun thing is when morrison uses her as like yes the jilted ex Absolutely. and then the weird beast is the gay weird beast pretends to be gay <laughs> as a troll to upset trish and that then trish tells everyone that he's gay <laughs> And right. But actually she dumps him because he got involved into Kitty Beast and she feels like it's bestiality and she's uncomfortable. Right. I mean, that which is that's funny. It's weird, but it's, it's funny. Yes, exactly. It's like Mor Morrison senses immediately that that's where you put the knife. Right. Right. And yeah. That's really good. And I mean, like Opal, all of Bobby's exes would work. If they work retro retroactively, right? It works. Right. The whole like, point oh. of Opal is that Opal is this normal. She's introduced in X Factor, which I had forgotten that she comes in that early. But I've been rereading the Simonson X Factor while I've been doing this podcast because it's been. I mean, I read it when I was like twelve, so it's been a minute. <laughs> I forgot it all. I've been rereading it too, and it's like, oh, oh yeah, oh yeah. Like I was, it was like I'm Opal Tanaka. I was like, oh shit, because I mostly remember her from the '90s stuff where I found her pretty unbearable. In the '80s stuff, she's actually kind of fun. And, and sort of yeah well the thing that happens to Opal Tanaka is the thing that happens to all the Asian characters in the yeah 90s, where it suddenly becomes like my cousins are my all cousin is an evil samurai right yeah yeah no, and it's... Bobby has to fight for her honor yeah and it's like I don't love this story but also Opal doesn't love the story which is kind of a neat <laughs> 
Well, and particularly because it's right after Bobby takes Opal home to his parents and his dad is just like a racist. Oof. Yeah. So yeah, we should talk about that, which basically is invented for. Let's the go back Iceman. to the miniseries first, I guess, exactly. because what I was, yeah. what I, because that's where you start to get that plot thread, really. So the reason I bring up the champions is because that was a complete flop attempt to do something with Angel and Iceman, because the new X Men book is working. It has become the most popular book at Marvel. We don't need to bring back these characters, but we need to do something with them, because otherwise they're just not doing anything, and they're Lee Kirby characters. You don't just let those lie fallow, you know what I mean right so they tried that and it didn't work and then they ended up trying it again essentially with the defenders this time incorporating beast well I mean the other part of this that's worth thinking about outside of the comics and this is a perennial problem for Marvel is that Iceman is a huge hit on Spider-Man and his amazing friends in the 80s you're absolutely right so marvel is like well, we need to have this character around because the kids love him yep and he's one of the i mean we've talked about his aesthetics he looks gorgeous in a comic he looks gorgeous animated he has the most visual yes. powers of the x-men right so they, they have to put him somewhere <laughs> right and it absolutely is in terms of the 80s stuff Spider-Man and His Amazing Friends, 81 to 83. That's immediately when they... She's also super gay. Oh, it's so gay. <laughs> uh, isn't that why they brought in Firestar in the first place? She's invented for the cartoon, yeah. She's... But I know she's invented for the But didn't they bring her in because otherwise it would be too gay? Because I think initially <laughs> it, it was going to be... I know. They read as like... <laughs> well, first of all, Firestar is another character where like being attracted to Firestar is gay, right? Like it has right. a, yeah. you yeah. know... <laughs> But she, but I, I feel like it was initially supposed to be. Oh, that they yes. wasn't it she supposed to be the two of them and Johnny Storm? Yes, it was supposed to be. Yeah, exactly. It was supposed to be Human Torch, uh, Peter, and Iceman. It's like this is three. This is a sauce. And they live together, and they're confirmed and bachelors the- living together in a fancy <laughs> apartment. And it's just kind of like, okay, one of these roomies has to be a chick. Yeah, and it doesn't get. It's like three's company. It becomes where it's like, yeah. You it made just it becomes gayer because she's just like hanging out with them. <laughs> and it's not and she also is just like again a very campy character to begin with I've been with. rewatching it this week and it's like I don't think I've ever seen two male characters show so much physical affection in a cartoon before. I'll tell you I had all like, of that really on VHS when I was a kid and I loved it for reasons that were not apparent to me at the time they're also really beautiful I mean they're gorgeous well, it's beautifully drawn and it's good I mean as for a kids show especially of oh, the yeah. time it, it, superhero wise it's very 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 good yeah yeah and also like Peter has his beautiful brown ringlets like mm-hmm. it's they look gorgeous <laughs> yeah and Bobby really does look like a Bob Miser model in that like yes. it's very yeah, yeah. much and he he's like let me ice myself up he's voiced by Frank Welker he sure is he's who's like, Fred from Scooby-Doo talk about gay awakenings right so it's a very yeah no and and trust me i recognize that voice i was a child but i was like ooh, i know that guy yeah (laughs) so that's why they need the miniseries yeah first they need the defenders and then they need the miniseries and the miniseries i mostly know jam demateus from his run with keith giffen on justice league international and those stories over at DC, which... He has like a sizable amount of Spider-Man stuff. Yeah, but too. I was just never a big Spider-Man head. So for me, mm. I, I know the JLI stuff. And the relationship between Booster Gold and Blue Beetle is also very... Oh, boy. <laughs> like <laughs> <Yeah>. this. Yes. <laughs> we said earlier, when we first brought up the miniseries, the plot in it is not really the focus. Because Oblivion is sort of this throwaway cosmic entity it's not important and I don't think it's meant to be important he's more of a symbol that allows Bobby to get introspective and the highlight 
of the miniseries is the dialogue, which is very naturalistic Absolutely. and good. And that's what I always think of also with JLI. And JLI was in many ways a response, I think, in the same way that New Teen Titans by Wolfman and Perez was to the Claremont X-Men, where it had become soapier, it had become more dialogue-driven. And the JLI, they were always bantering, they were always Mm -hmm. having thoughtful conversations, but it was funny. And this feels very much like that. So the premise of this miniseries in 1984 is Bobby goes to a family reunion and everyone is rude. (laughs) But everyone is rude in a really specific way, which I really like. Like, so Bobby, we find out this issue, these issues basically created Bobby's biography, really. Like, yeah. We didn't know much about him until this miniseries. In the original 60s run, there's those Roy Thomas backups like where, yeah, yeah, but yeah. it's very limited, much like how yeah. Scott's plane crash doesn't come in until much later on in the 80s. Yeah. Like Bobby's yeah. actual backstory doesn't get filled in until the 80s. Yeah, we knew he had like a bully and he saved a girl. And Angel and Cameron Hodge, speaking of gay-coded weirdness, is also- <laughs> <laughs> the Warren episode is going to be all about that probably because I am fascinated by that boarding school relationship between Warren and Cameron. Cameron Hodge is such a mess. I'm obsessed with when he's got like the robot body, but he still hangs a suit off the body of his robot form. Yeah, <laughs> I love that too. He's so fucking weird. Anyway, so we find out Bobby is background. We find out that his dad is Irish Catholic and his mother is Jewish mm-hmm. um, and his dad lost a brother in the war, which I guess in 1985 is meant to be some kind of Vietnam thing. No, it's World War II. World War II? How does that work? The timeline. Because he travels back. <laughs> oh, that's This right. is all in the miniseries, actually. Because he travels back to 1942 and meets his parents as teenagers. Where his mother's 17, his father's 21, and they're engaged. And this is later in the miniseries, obviously. And his, his uncle George died in World War II. And then... They had fertility problems and money problems. And so he was born when they were like almost 40. Right. They're very old, even in this early. Yes. They somehow have gotten older and older every time we see them in the interview. They've been euthened up a couple of times. But yeah, in this miniseries, (laughs) they look about 70. It's very Aunt May. where like It doesn't make sense. Why is Peter Parker's Aunt May 80 years old? Women don't look that old ever anymore. So yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But particularly like this is your uncle like not your great uncle (laughs) and his wife yeah right why is she 95 years old right if you're 16 Um, it doesn't make a ton of sense but yeah so we go to port jefferson long island which i had not remembered and that's where my sister goes to medical school so that really like threw me because it's not a it's not a super (laughs) like topical reference most of the time what is the ref like unpack that for me like what kind of background are we meant to understand bobby to be living in in port jefferson long island in 1985, 19, I guess, 60 when he was a kid. So Port Jeff is basically like, it's not the Hamptons. Mm-hmm. It's not Montauk. It's not like the nice part of Long Island, but it's a pretty nice part of Long Island. Right. Like it has some summer touristy stuff like most of Long Island, but it's not for rich people. It's a much right. more sort of middle class Right, working to middle class. Is kind Particularly of, back yeah. then, it would have been much more working class. And we see in the flashback that like the shitty bigot cop who bothers Bobby in the present, <laughs> right. his father is the cop in right. the 40s in the same town. <laughs> right. And we get the sense that his parents would have been much happier if Bobby had just been a cop. Yeah. Actually, I think Cinna Grace in his, uh, in his series 
has his mom be like, if you wanted to be a real hero, you would have just been a firefighter. It's like, ooh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's funny because Bobby's parents, I mean, most famously, speaking of problematic histories, but like it was problematic even at the time, Brian Singer uses Bobby's parents very overtly in the Fox X-Men movies. Have you tried just not being a mutant? Like that whole right. scene that everybody sort of points to. That's based on stuff from the comics yeah, that, that already feels existed. Like this miniseries, actually. Yeah. It starts in this miniseries where they're basically just like, why are you this embarrassing creature that isn't what we wanted? <laughs> right. Why and do you keep then... developing crushes on women who turn out to be non-tangible cosmic beings? Yeah. <laughs> and then also the story in the 90s that we're talking about because after Emma has been in his body and basically says to him so right yes you're so gay like, you should talk about it yeah he then takes rogue oh god yeah because he's taken Opal and they were so racist and then they were attacked by her like samurai cousin or whatever. And Bobby's father is like, see, I was right about the Japanese. And so like that's all kind of yes. a wash. And shortly after that, Opal dumps him. Then he tries to go back to his parents with a girlfriend. And this time he brings Rogue, who, first of all, he doesn't particularly know very well. Second of all, is a woman he literally cannot touch. <laughs> right. Yes. So there's that aspect to it. And Rogue is kind of like, why are you bringing me to meet your parents i don't even really know you bobby and it's very clear that that's exactly why he's bringing her right so in the 90s basically from x-men number one bobby's in the uncanny x-men book and his storyline is basically that he has a block in his life that he can't articulate and he doesn't know he's like stuck against it and he'll never be able to fully use his powers until he faces whatever it is <laughs> right. that emma frost has implied <laughs> yeah he's not being honest about so the, the Hellions get killed, Emma gets put in a coma, and when she comes out of it, she possesses Bobby's body and immediately does all these crazy things with it that he's never done. And he, like, confronts her about it, and she's she's very clear, like, <laughs> you need to get past the thing you're not telling everybody. Yeah, there's something you're not telling everyone, and until you face it, you'll never meet your potential. Right. And, and we both it's... know what I'm talking about, but I'm going to be a little discreet, because <laughs> I'm not that big a bitch, but right. we both know what I'm talking about. But she's not that discreet. Like she, No, but she's talking now, to him privately. Like, like, she makes an interior decorating joke. She like, sure does. <laughs> It's it's this thing where they take it right to the line in, in a way that I like I literally I say this all the time, but it's true. I literally knew Bobby Drake was gay before I knew I was gay. Right. No, same. It's like it was on the page as much as you could put it on the page. Yeah. And Shooter had left by then. So or had been fired. Let's be transparent. So it was Bob <laughs> Harris at that point as editor in chief. So they were allowed to flirt with it more. Yeah. But yeah. it's still because here's the thing. He's still a Lee Kirby character. He's still a character from the 60s. It was a big enough controversy when North Star, a character literally no one gave a shit about, who was always intended to be gay by his creators, was revealed to be gay. So the idea of let's make one of the original X-Men from the 60s gay, that's pretty unthinkable at the time. So yeah. they just are pushing up so close against it that, like you said, Emma can make an interior decorating joke and can be like the thing you're not telling everyone. Right. And then he can take Rogue, the woman no man can can touch to meet with his parents like and pose as his girlfriend yeah. and it's just very much <laughs> it's there yeah it's uh if, if you're looking for a, to read this issue it's issue 319 yeah 
And my favorite thing in it, it's Brian Hitch. If you know Hitch's style, it's very like posy, beautiful women. It's Actually, beautiful, there's, yeah. There's this there's this weird thing where you can look at the image of Rogue on the splash page, which she's like literally naked. Like she's like yeah, wearing she's these little essentially nude. Yeah, it's like Daisy Dukes. <laughs> but she's she can do that because she knows Bobby's never gonna touch her, <laughs> right? And then you flip the page a few a few pages later, and it's Emma projecting into his mind. It's the same pose. It's identical. And in both of them, Bobby is just like disgruntledly looking at Rogue, being like, "Why aren't you helping change the tire?" Like. He has no, he's like so morose. It's very clear that they both understand what the situation is. Like she's going to be the beard. She's going to get through this. But she spends five minutes with Bobby's family. He's like, oh, you're bigots. Like I'm not. Like, oh, I hate these people. Yeah, yeah. These and people Bobby's... are fucking bigots. <laughs> Rogue also notably has two moms. Right. So that's yes, the other yeah. subtext in this issue <laughs> is Rogue was raised by lesbians. So there's a very specific <laughs> thing here where it's like she gets it. She knows the score. She, like, tries to get him to say it to her, essentially. She's like, why me, Bobby? But, <laughs> right. he, but like, he knows, because they all met Mystique and Destiny. Even, even if Claremont couldn't say what was going on on panel, they <laughs> all know what that deal was. So it's like, all right, I'll have the lesbians kid come with me who, like, won't ever try to touch me because she would kill me if she did. Yeah. And we'll just have a nice dinner with my parents. And then she gets there and she's just like, oh, I hate these people. <laughs> right. They're the worst. How do you, you live like this? Right. And it's like it's Rogue in her 90s form, which is basically Dolly Parton with the powers of Superman, where it's just like, fuck this. Like, I'm out of here. It's but a yeah, it's a very Bobby Delta a Burke kind yes. of vibe. Oh, yeah, I see it. Yeah. <laughs> um, very designing that's, women. That's what I find Bobby so fascinating is he's basically kind of already come out to his parents with the mutant thing. Right. And he has now seen exactly how they will react. And it's a version of the queer experience of the gay male experience that I don't often see depicted, which is what if you come out and they're kind of fine with it and you just have but to But not deal, really. But not really. Exactly. It's just like, I think the lesson Bobby learns um, very early in life is that love comes with conditions. And this issue has a flashback to him as a child making sandcastles on the beach and it's the mm-hmm. first sense we get of Bobby's imagination as being a key part of his powers. Like, if I described, it's actually kind of hard to recoup now because he's so much part of the cultural imagination. If I told you without knowing anything about the X-Men and there's a character who has ice powers, you wouldn't jump to, oh, obviously he coats himself in ice and glides around on an ice slide. Like, that's a very... Right, no, you would think it was a character like Storm or Polaris where they have an energy power. Exactly. And instead he uses it in the most like Kyle Rainery artistic way. That's why the accountant thing is part of the joke. But his dad sees him making these sandcastles and he's like, imagination will never get you anywhere. And like that is the kind of childhood Bobby has had. Like he has always been disappointed by the people that he loves and he's still tries to meet them at the 60 70% they're willing to give them and i find that very compelling as much as like as much as i love writing wiccan and hulkling i love writing them because they have an ideal experience that i did not have right Bob whereas bobby's much closer to your <laughs> life yeah i mean not to we're not going to get into your business but i know you pretty intimately and uh i mean there's a lot of resonance with this character and that just I can like see. the emotional constipation of his father 
and his mother. Rereading that mini, my favorite part is when his father does like a bigot thing, as always. And his mother is like, he has a weak heart, Bobby. Don't kill your father. (laughs) She literally says like, don't kill your father. It is the most. And listen, my mother is not Jewish, so I apologize if this offends at all. But it is the most Jewish mother moment possibly ever in comics. It's right right after his aunt has called him Babala at the reunion. He talks a lot as a character about how he has Irish Catholic guilt and Jewish guilt. Yes. Like- and they're very similar <laughs> guilts, you know, like it's Catholic and Jewish, Irish moms and Jewish moms and Italian moms. And I imagine Azorian Portuguese moms, right. though I haven't had that personal experience. <laughs> there is sort of a similar immigrant Catholic Jewish, that era of the immigration experience Mm -hmm. where so much of it is sort of guilt driven and is about like, why aren't you doing more for the family? Right, right. (laughs) It's like, Bobby, your father's going to die. Yes, she always sides with him too, right? Yeah. And then they always try to turn around. She'll always be like, he's going to come visit you at the mansion or whatever. And it's like, okay, but she still sucks just as much (laughs) as the dad does because she (laughs) enables him and she makes it Bobby's fault. And what's interesting about the end of the mini is the resolution is essentially, you know, Bobby's like, I never really have told you how much I appreciate all the things that you did and the sacrifices that you both made for me, but I have to be myself Mm -hmm. and I'm going to be a superhero and a mutant and I can't do that. And they both... I mean, this is what's really fucking gay about that mini. <laughs> Honestly, the the gayest thing in it that's different from the way the mutant characters get discussed, to go back to JoJo's question, is there is a moment in, in the very last issue where the parents admit that they blame themselves for the fact that he's a mutant, have always felt like their genes or whatever did it, and that he would have had an easier, better life if that weren't the case, and they're ashamed. Right, which comes up again when he comes out to them finally in the Cinegrace run. In the Cinegrace run, Where yeah. the mom is like, this is your fault because there's no mutants and no queers on my side of the family. It's like, right. <laughs> and it's very much a very specific, I mean, there are lots of characters in the X-Men who are rejected by their parents, but the very specific, oh my goodness, is this because of some failure of how we raised yes. you yeah. thing is very, very specifically gay feeling and it's it's a wound that and it recurs repeatedly whenever he sees them exactly it's like and what i find amazing i mean this always happens with comics right like the toys all go back in the box it's hard for characters to grow but this attrition that they always have to relearn this lesson feels Mm -hmm. very real to me (laughs) yeah no it's like oh i have to go see my bigot family again and it happens over and over and no matter how many times like oh i stood up to graden creed and got the shit kicked out of me i'm still your fucking bigot father like there's no i love that arc i love it more than i do too it's good it's good Um, i think it's good but it doesn't you talk you talk shit of the 90s but there's some good stuff i do i do here's the thing i I'm just generally not a huge fan of, I would say, 96 through 2000. Onslaught. Yeah, I hate Onslaught, (laughs) and I hate pretty much everything that spins out of Onslaught. As a teenager, I I met uh, Brian Michael Bendis at a con, and I begged him to do Ultimate Onslaught. That tells you I I once spent a month building an Onslaught costume. I think Onslaught is the summation of the 90s in all good and bad ways. (laughs) But... (laughs) Listen, I will defend things like the cross time caper until the day I die. So the, the stories right. we attach ourselves to are the stories we attach ourselves to. Exactly. You never get to pick. And that's the nice thing about pulp. 
Yeah. But I like the Graydon Creed story. Well, it was prescient in a way that was interesting. Which? The Graydon Creed stuff? The Graydon Creed story. Oh, yeah. Boy. Here's like an overtly racist presidential candidate. Oh, yeah. I guess. Obviously, that's something that had happened before in history. <laughs> right. But to do it in the 90s was... Right. That wasn't exactly the explicit Republican language of the 90s. They were trying to be sort of more veiled. Post-Reagan. About yeah, things yeah. like that after Reagan. Yeah, I guess I guess your readers might not know this. So Graydon Creed is Sabretooth and Mystique's son, who is a non-mutant, is a human character, and because he knows who his parents are, has grown up to become like the leader of... The ultimate Friends of Humanity big... Yeah. Yeah. yeah, he's like, he's, I don't know what you guys, Americans are, he, he would he would definitely have a Make America Great Again hat on these days. Um, but, <laughs> but Bobby. Graydon Creed would be like a QAnon influencer on yes. Twitter. Yeah, he's Tom Cotton. Yeah, he's uh, Richard Spencer. Yeah. Oh, no, Richard Spencer is a very good example. He's that kind of, of character. And that's why I'm saying it's a little bit prescient yeah. in the sense that the mainstreaming of that in, because like Senator Kelly is that in the 80s stories, but Senator Kelly isn't a popular presidential candidate. It's like a right. different kind of story. So I do like that story, but I do think that the stuff with Bobby's father there is weird because basically what happens, and we'll get into the character file soon because we've been talking for almost an hour and we should do that soon. <laughs> but this is gonna be a giant size, I can already tell. But the story basically is that Bobby infiltrates Graydon Creed's presidential campaign undercover. And importantly does so with Cannonball which is very important to me because it was drawn by Joe Maggerera and they mm. both look super hot and they're sharing a hotel room and what's going on? It has like that very like supernatural shipping energy happening. <laughs> no, I get it. I See, this is part of why that era is not my favorite because I just, and this is just totally a personal taste thing. I'm not saying he's a bad artist or anything, but the Joe Mad X-Men was just not my vibe. Oh, my to totally my, yeah. my thing. He draws a beautiful man. He draws a cyclops with a giant nipple like you won't believe. <laughs> I mean, I, I get where you're coming from. I just like if I'm going to look at a male superhero with a giant nipple, I want like an Alan Davis. Like it's I just it. it's just I an art it. style thing yeah. that's not that or like a Phil Jimenez giant nippled man. Hey, yeah, I get it. You yeah. know, <laughs> there's something about the faux manga style of the late 90s Joe Mad stuff that just never quite worked for me. But that's, right. again, that's purely an aesthetic concern. But yeah, so he and Cannonball sexily infiltrate Graydon Creed's racist presidential campaign. And I think that Cannonball's secret name is like Samuel Guthrie's. Like it's not. <laughs> it's not good. Right. Yeah. And isn't Bobby's like Drake Roberts yeah, or something? Yeah, it's Drake like Roberts. They're not, it's, just, it's not yeah, subtle. Yeah. What happens is that Bobby's dad goes to like a speech that Graydon Creed is giving and heckles him and is right. like, my son's a mutant. Those are American children too. Or whatever. I forget the exact, but he basically takes a stand and Bobby is shocked because his father has famously been a bigot every time we've ever met his father. Right. But it's clear that Graydon Creed is too far. Right. Right. For yeah. his father. It's like, don't talk about my son that way. Right. Bobby's parents are very like, um, yeah, you're you're a mutant, but you have to flaunt it kind of energy, right? Right, so. and it's like only we get to talk about our son this way, not <laughs> exactly. you. You know what I mean? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so in retaliation, Creed has Bobby's father beaten nearly to death. And I did feel like it was an interesting story and that when they went back to the well again of Bobby's bigot parents, it was odd because 
that's one of the few stories that star Iceman. He's right. not usually, a, like, even though he was all over the 90s, he's not usually a leading character. Right. This is like issue 340, by the way, if anyone is yeah. trying to find it's 340 is basically a, a one shot. It's just one of those things where it felt like that should have been a character beat that was maintained more than it was, I guess. Like I a reformed know. dad kind of yeah, thing? Yeah, like, or like that they reached some kind of understanding, but then whenever we see his dad again, he's back to like the guy who gave Opal and Rogue shit at the right. dinners, yeah. you know? <laughs> yeah, I mean, which is uh, fine. As you I know, said, not everybody grows. Like... Not everybody grows and changes, and some people are just bigots to their exactly. core, and that's you know, like that's just how it is. But it does feel like one of those stories that weirdly doesn't make an impact. I do find over the years, Bobby's dad has kind of. Sometimes Bobby's dad is written as religious and sometimes he isn't. Yeah. I think that some writers miss the fact that Irish Catholic is kind of a cultural thing almost more than it's a religious thing. (laughs) Well, and that's what's interesting about his parentage specifically is that like speaking as someone who is from an Irish background and a Jewish background, like (laughs) my family is not religious at all. Right. And yet those things. They are cultural. (laughs) Like My parents are agnostic, atheist, whatever. Like we grew up nominally Christian going to a very low key Protestant church on Christmas and Easter because my mom liked the songs. Right. It was never a thing. But like my father, that like cultural Jewish thing is very much ingrained in him. Both my parents have the cultural Irish thing ingrained because it's just something that sticks with you. Yeah. And his dad, his dad has made reference to his like his all boys Catholic traumas, right? Like, yeah, he's like you're making an old Irish man feel real, you know, bad or whatever, right? Yeah, and it doesn't. I can understand. I agree. Like, it does seem like if comics weren't comics, you would end the Bobby dad arc. That would be the end of that story, right? It's this is the eternal problem with ongoing superhero (laughs) comics is that they are like General Hospital. It's been running for sixty years and. As my father has pointed out, if the X-Men were a manga, the Dark Phoenix saga would be the end. Right. It would end there. Conversely, just to say the opposite thing I just said, like, I am very familiar with this exact thing happening where it feels like, oh, they finally turned the corner. They'll finally be okay with it. I can well, start this is why I wanted stuff. to talk to you about this. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like suddenly this person who you have so much affection for says something horrible again and it's like I thought we were done this I thought we had resolved this issue yeah (laughs) didn't you get over this already and it's like it comes back all the time and what I like about the way Bobby's parents are written is it always comes back in this he talks a lot about feeling smothered by them and suffocated by them and it's because they always put a dag like it's a pillowed dagger every time right like and he's their only child and he's such a disappointment yes exactly (laughs) And he's never going to have kids and he's never going to be normal and he's their only child and they worked so hard to have him. That's the thing in the miniseries also. The fact that it took them like 20 years for her to get pregnant yeah, and that they were so poor and they scraped everything together and this is what we get? Like a freak mutant superhero? And so much tragedy, the dead brother and everything, yeah. Yeah. Yikes. And he gets bitter, right? Like that's becomes his arc for the Austin years is like the disillusionment mm-hmm. of Bobby Drake. <laughs> right? 
Yeah. Well, that's a good time, I think, to very belatedly pause for the Cerebro character <laughs> file on Bobby Drake, which will go over a lot of these storylines and the rest of them. Although, as I said earlier in this episode, I do try to streamline these. And luckily, I guess, for this, Bobby has never been, as I said, an enormously starring character. So it's sort of like the Nightcrawler one where most of the time he's just there. Right. And he he's cool and <laughs> factors into stuff, but it's not really about him. So I'm hoping this won't be quite as long as, for example, the Cyclops one where I felt like I was just waiting through molasses <laughs> to get that done because I was like, there are 57 years of this character and he is always center stage, right. you know, whereas Bobby is usually off to the side. So let's do that. And then we'll come back and just honestly, I'm enjoying the free form. So we'll probably uh, <laughs> be a little free form as we come back. So we'll be right back. X-Men, X-Men. Robert Louis Drake, always called Bobby and better known as Iceman, is an original X-Man and one of the most immediately recognizable characters in the franchise. Introduced in September 1963's X-Men No. 1 by Stan Lee and Jack Kirby, he has spent most of his 57 years of publication as a supporting character, the team's jokester who lightens the mood. In 2015, he became the only classic Lee and Kirby creation to be later established as a gay character and has become the most prominent gay male character at Marvel Comics. A little younger than the rest of the original class, in his first appearance, Bobby is the only boy at Xavier's with no romantic interest in their new teammate Jean Grey, codenamed Marvel Girl. An elemental mutant with power over cold, Bobby first covers himself in a packing of snow for combat before further training enables him to transform into sleeker and more useful ice. His signature use of his power is the invention of the ice slide, a means of travel through the air by creating a sliding pathway beneath his feet. Primarily a comic relief character, Iceman is a foil to Cyclops' self-seriousness, Angel's elegance, and Beast's intellect. His developing friendship with the Fantastic Four's Johnny Storm, called the Human Torch, creates a number of crossover stories. Bobby is first provided with an origin story in backup features from X-Men 44 to X-Men 46, where it's revealed his powers first manifested when he was on a date with a girl named Judy. Freezing a local bully into a block of ice, he's set upon by a lynch mob and rescued by Professor Xavier and Cyclops, becoming the second member of the team. To protect the safety of the school, Xavier wipes the memories of the townspeople to preserve Bobby's secret. And after Bobby's parents agree to send him to Xavier's, he alters their minds as well, removing their knowledge of Bobby's status as a mutant. After the apparent death of Professor Xavier in X-Men 46, Bobby stays in New York City with his best friend and classmate Hank McCoy, called Beast. He dates a waitress named Zelda, but is quickly smitten with the newly awakened mutant Lorna Dane, eventually codenamed Polaris, who becomes the second female member of the X-Men. He's heartbroken when Lorna falls in love with Cyclops' brother Alex, codenamed Havoc, and chooses to be with him instead. Tension brews between Bobby and Alex until the return of Professor Xavier, who reveals a decoy was killed in his place. Then X-Men was cancelled. Five years later, in 1975, Marvel decided to relaunch the unpopular X-Men title with an overhaul of the team. Iceman and the other 60s X-Men are captured by the living island Krakoa in Giant Size X-Men No. 1 by writer Len Wein and artist Dave Cockrum. Their leader Cyclops rescues them with the help of a new team of X-Men, and after this adventure, Bobby decides to retire from superheroics and try living a normal life. In the short-lived new series The Champions, he begins college at UCLA, where he studies accountancy. After an unexpected adventure with the Olympian god Hercules, he and fellow retired X-Man Angel join forces with Hercules, Ghost Rider, and the Black Widow to form the new team, the Champions of Los Angeles. The Soviet mutant Darkstar joins the team after defecting from her homeland, 
and Bobby pines after her, but she never returns his affections. After the cancellation of the Champions with issue 17, Bobby faded into the background of the Marvel Universe for a time. He transfers to another school back in New York City and is summoned by Professor Xavier to battle the supervillain Arcade in 1981's Uncanny X-Men 146. Also recruited for this mission are Havoc and Polaris, and Bobby comes to terms with the fact that Lorna loves Alex and not him. In 1983's Defenders 122, he visits his best friend Beast, who had continued his career as a superhero, first as one of the Avengers and now as one of the Defenders, and ends up forming a new iteration of that team with Beast, Angel, and the heroes Valkyrie, Moondragon, and Gargoyle in Defenders 125. As a member of the Defenders, Bobby falls in love with Cloud, a mysterious woman with no memories. Cloud repeatedly shifts between male and female forms while learning to be human, and these transformations leave Bobby very confused. Cloud and Bobby eventually part on good terms when Cloud is discovered to be a sentient nebula and has to return to outer space. Cloud does ultimately requite Bobby's feelings, but is unfortunately unable to remain on Earth, and so Bobby no longer has to grapple with his confusion about Cloud's shifting gender presentation. Though he'd told his parents about his mutant powers and his work with the X-Men some years prior, Bobby's afraid to tell them that he's become a superhero again. They've never approved of his lifestyle, and they only accept his returning to the field when he assures them he still plans to complete his accounting degree. In a 1984 solo Iceman miniseries by J.M. DeMatteis, Bobby attends the Drake family reunion in his hometown of Port Jefferson, Long Island. Here the reader finally learns more about his past. Born to an interfaith family with an Irish Catholic father and Jewish mother, he grew up feeling out of place and confused about his ethnic identity. His parents were older when they had him, after many years of trying to conceive, and it is evident that as a mutant, he is a disappointment to them. In Port Jefferson, Bobby is smitten with his parents' new neighbor, a young woman named Marge, only to discover, after they're attacked by interdimensional beings, that Marge is actually a cosmic entity called Mirage, not to be confused with Danielle Moonstar. Mirage's father, the cosmic entity Oblivion, seeks to reclaim her, and Bobby is sent bouncing through time and space, traveling to the year 1942 and meeting his parents as a young engaged couple. When his father is killed protecting him, a timeline split occurs in which he's never born, and he's cast into Oblivion's domain. In the end, he triumphs by showing Oblivion and Mirage the power of love, and the strange cosmic family departs, splitting off the timeline where Bobby's father died and returning Bobby to Earth-616. In a candid conversation with his parents, Bobby thanks them for the sacrifices they made on his behalf, and they admit that they blame themselves for his status as a mutant. The family reconciles, but their relationship remains tense. The Defenders was cancelled with issue 152 in 1986, in which all the Defenders, save Iceman, Angel, and Beast, are killed. The three original X-Men quickly join their old teammates Cyclops and Marvel Girl in the new book X-Factor, initially written by Bob Layton, but quickly taken over by Louise Simonson. As X-Factor, the original X-Men pose as a freelance mutant apprehending service, while secretly also operating as the mutant vigilantes the X-Terminators and training the mutants X-Factor takes into custody. This pretense, which at first seems clever, quickly begins escalating the exact human-mutant tensions the group hoped to fight. It's Bobby who first realizes the team is being manipulated by their business manager Cameron Hodge, an old friend of Angel's, who is secretly an anti-mutant human supremacist. Bobby remains with the team through such traumatic events as the Mutant Massacre, Angel's transformation into the immortal mutant apocalypse's Horsemen of Death in Fall of the Mutants, and the invasion of New York City by the Demons of Limbo in Inferno. At one point, Bobby is kidnapped by the Asgardian god Loki in an effort to control the Frost Giants of Jotunheim. Loki enhances Bobby's abilities, making him dramatically more powerful. When Cameron Hodge's treachery is revealed, X-Factor abandons the mutant hunting premise and its members reveal themselves publicly as the mutant superheroes who were using the name Exterminators. 
While with X Factor, Bobby dates a mutant named Infectia, who turns out to be pretty bad news, in case you didn't get that from her name being Infectia. After that goes awry, he begins a relationship with Opal Tanaka, a Japanese woman who works at a music store near the team's headquarters. Opal is not a mutant, and is intrigued by Bobby the person, not Iceman the superhero. Not long into their relationship, however, Bobby is forced to rescue Opal from her estranged grandfather, the Yakuza boss Tatsuo Tanaka, and his cyber samurai warriors. Don't worry about it. In the 1991 relaunch of the X-Men, the X-Men and X-Factor teams combine once more into one group, with Cyclops leading one squad, the Blue Team, and Storm leading the other, the Gold Team. The name X-Factor is adopted by Havoc and Polaris, who start a government-sponsored team to act as liaisons between the public and mutant kind. Bobby's assigned to the Gold Team, and becomes a regular cast member in Uncanny X-Men. There, under new writer Scott Lobdell, he continues his relationship with Opal, which is strained by his father's racism against Japanese people. Their visit to meet his parents is interrupted by another cyber samurai attack, which again, I assure you, you don't need to worry about. Bobby and Opal are estranged in the aftermath, and not long afterward, Opal officially ends their relationship, unable to tolerate life with the X-Men. In the early 90s stories, encounters with the supervillain Mikhail Rasputin and the acolyte called Frenzy compel Iceman to further develop his superhuman gifts, which appear to have potential beyond what the team suspected. They learn they have greatly underestimated Bobby's mutant powers when his body is accidentally possessed by the comatose Emma Frost, a former enemy of the X-Men known as the telepathic supervillain the White Queen. Emma uses Bobby's powers in astonishing ways no one has ever seen before, discovering apparently limitless potential, omega-level mutation, within him. After returning to her own body, Emma stresses to Bobby that he will never find his true power until he is honest with himself. Bobby forges a platonic friendship with his teammate Rogue, who poses as his girlfriend on another visit home to his parents. Rogue is horrified by Bobby's parents and their casual bigotry, and Bobby finally stands up to his father. When Rogue's romance with their teammate Gambit collapses, Bobby takes Rogue on a road trip, no powers allowed, and the two bond further. During the onslaught crisis, Bobby's life is threatened when he's partially shattered in his ice form. Unable to return to human form lest he bleed out, Bobby confronts Emma Frost, demanding to know how she used his powers so effectively while inhabiting his body. Emma puts him through his paces telepathically, forcing him to confront visions of his father and his ex-girlfriend Opal, and after this impromptu therapy session, he's able to take some higher control over his powers and repair the damage to his body. In the aftermath, he and Emma grow close as friends, though he still finds it difficult to trust the White Queen. When the anti-mutant extremist Graydon Creed launches a popular bid for the presidency of the United States, Bobby takes on the cover identity of Drake Roberts and infiltrates the campaign. He is stunned when his father interrupts one of Creed's speeches to defend mutant rights, given his father's history of bigoted remarks about Bobby's own status as a mutant. Creed uncovers the heckler's connection to Drake Roberts, and Bobby is fired from the campaign. His father is beaten nearly to death by hired goons, and Bobby takes a leave of absence from the X-Men to care for him on Long Island. Though he occasionally assists the team, rescuing civilian mutant Dr. Cecilia Reyes from the Sentinels of Operation Zero Tolerance, and participating in a great battle against Apocalypse as one of the prophesied mutants known as the Twelve, Bobby spends most of his time in this period caring for his father. He formally rejoins the X-Men in 2001's Uncanny X-Men 395, and that year stars in a second Iceman miniseries by Dan Abnett and Andy Lanning. In this story, he discovers that Opal Tanaka has secretly given birth to a half-white child she named Robert. Bobby tracks Opal and her son to Hong Kong, where he saves them from an evil corporation linked to the X-Men's enemy John Sublime. The villains force Opal to tell Bobby that Robert is his child, which is a lie, and after they're defeated, Bobby decides to stay in Hong Kong with Opal and their son. Opal leaves in secret, revealing that baby Robert was not actually Bobby's, and believing he will never want to see her again after she lied to protect herself. 
Bobby, depressed, reveals he never believed Robert was his child, but wanted to raise him with Opal anyway. Back with the X-Men, under writer Chuck Austin, Bobby begins to develop an alarming secondary mutation. His injuries begin to heal over as ice rather than flesh, and he's unable to shift those parts of his body back to normal. Afraid he will permanently turn to ice, Bobby becomes short-tempered and mean, frustrating many of his teammates. He's further devastated when Havoc, who was believed dead, is found alive and makes plans to marry Polaris. Bobby still has feelings for Polaris and tries to start a romance with the new school nurse, Annie Gazakanian, who has been treating his new mutation and is herself in love with Havoc. When Havoc leaves Polaris at the altar because he loves Annie, and Annie decides to be with Havoc, Bobby is once again left reeling. For once, Bobby is the subject of an unrequited crush, as his gay teammate Northstar falls for him and is frustrated by Bobby's protestations of heterosexuality. While battling a group of demonic mutants called the Nephaim, don't worry about it, he is shattered entirely while in his ice form, left only as a disembodied head. In a dramatic display of power, he drains the water from the body of an enemy and uses it to reconstitute himself, but finds he is now permanently made of ice, as he feared would happen. He does, however, begin dating Polaris, who decides to give him a chance after all these years now that her relationship with Havoc has ended in a dramatic fashion. Their romance is complicated by Havoc's presence on the team, especially after Annie Gazakanian leaves the school, and Lorna and Alex grow closer again, much to Bobby's distress. This status quo lasts until the 2005 company-wide event House of M, wherein the Scarlet Witch decimates the mutant population and leaves only about 200 mutants with their gifts. Bobby is transformed back into human form by the decimation, and believes he has been depowered, but this turns out to be a psychosomatic result of psychological stress. Emma Frost is able to restore his powers telepathically, and Bobby is once again able to control them. His happiness is short-lived, however, when he discovers Polaris has been depowered by the decimation, and she ends their relationship. Havoc goes with her, clearly looking to resume their relationship, and the two cross paths with the X-Men again when Apocalypse turns Lorna into his newest horseman of pestilence. His experiments restore Polaris's mutant magnetic powers, but also infect her with a deadly disease, and Havoc risks his life to save her. Bobby, touched by the depths of Alex's love for Lorna, wishes them well. While battling the villains called the Children of the Vault, Bobby grows closer with an unlikely teammate, the former terrorist Mystique. He develops further control over his Omega-level mutant powers, becoming able to reconstitute himself from atoms when his ice form is evaporated by fire. Bobby and Mystique develop a sexual connection, but she's actually manipulating him and poisons him during sex to set up the X-Men for attack on behalf of her true employer, the evil Mr. Sinister. They begin a long game of cat and mouse that includes a period where she poses as Opal Tanaka via shapeshifting and begins dating Bobby. After a final confrontation with Mystique, Bobby moves to the mutant haven Utopia, where he becomes responsible for using his powers to provide water for the tiny remaining population of mutant kind. Over time, Iceman's relationship with Cyclops becomes strained, as he does not agree with Scott's militaristic attitude on Utopia. In the 2011 event Schism, he sides with Wolverine and leaves Utopia to help establish the new Jean Grey School for Higher Learning on the old grounds of the Xavier Estate. There he briefly embarks on a romantic relationship with his friend Kitty Pride, the school's new headmistress. Not long afterward, in the all-new X-Men run by Brian Michael Bendis, Beast pulls teenage versions of the five original X-Men forward in time to the present, hoping to show Cyclops how far he has fallen from the ideals he held as a teenager. Bobby's distressed by the teenage version of him running around, especially after the teenage Jean Grey asks teen Bobby about his homosexuality, which she has perceived with her new and uncontrolled telepathy. Teen Bobby admits it's true and confronts adult Bobby, who confesses that he's also gay and has lived in denial for most of his life. He's ashamed to face his younger self, who begins living life as an openly gay young man, experiencing all the romantic joys Bobby had denied himself, until the time-traveling teen X-Men are forced to return to the past. 
Bobby shares an emotional goodbye with his younger self, grateful to have accepted the truth about his sexuality. In the 2017 Iceman ongoing solo book by Cinna Grace, Bobby begins living an openly gay life, coming out to his parents, who react in their typically bigoted fashion, and embarking on his first relationship with a man, briefly dating a normal human named Judah Miller. Reuniting with Emma Frost, now estranged from the X-Men, he helps her save her gay brother Christian from a psychotic telepathic delusion brought on by years of conversion therapy and torture by their father. After the 2019 franchise-wide soft reboot House of X and Powers of Ten by Jonathan Hickman, Bobby moves to the new mutant sovereign nation on the living island Krakoa. There he becomes one of the Marauders, a team of seafaring mutant operatives led by his dear friends Kitty Pride and Emma Frost. The Marauders supervise trade routes and rescue refugee mutants who have been denied the opportunity to emigrate to Krakoa. While serving with this new team, he has embarked on a relationship with Christian Frost, who has taken the title White Bishop in the new Hellfire Trading Company. Seemingly happier than he's ever been, Bobby has embraced life as a gay man and expanded his control over his mutant powers to levels beyond measure, just as Emma promised he would when he finally found himself. X-Men! X-Men! So we're back. Thank you for sticking with us through the character file. Some people tell me it's their favorite part of the show, and I'm very grateful for that because I'm always worried, uh-oh, this is too long away from the guest because I think of the guests as the highlight of the yeah, show. Yeah, I'm offended. <laughs> You know, but you've got to serve both audiences, I suppose. So the audience that's here for the guest, we're back. I promise we're back. And we're going to give you more <laughs> of the red hot content you crave, which is, I guess, a silly thing to say about a Bobby Drake episode because it's not hot. He's not red hot. He's ice cold, usually. He's ice cold. You got, is that our first ice bun? It took longer than I would have expected. Yeah, I really thought we would hit those <laughs> faster. So I guess what we should talk about next is can we talk about the mall scene the mall scene go for it hit that oh my god so when i said that like i knew bobby was gay before i knew i was gay there's a really specific scene that is seared into my brain at the very beginning of the onslaught story where he's in a mall with gene gray they're in like a starbucks bookstory situation and i remember it's, it's literally burned into my brain that he's wearing these purple they're pants. purple it's like purple parachute <laughs> pants yeah and he's like, Gene, I have something to tell you. And we never find out what he was going to tell her. And it's very clear that this is a coming out scene. And then there's like an attack and like Gene finds out Onslaught is coming. Right. But to me, it's like, because of course that's who he would tell. And of course, as, it, as things unfurl, she is the one who tells him. Well, and that's the thing. So I got in a little trouble with some of the fans after the Emma Frost episode because we were talking about teen Gene outing teen Bobby in the Bendis run. Right. And I said... I feel like adult Gene would do that. And people linked to that scene, which I had forgotten because, again, not a big Onslaught fan. <laughs> so I had forgotten that scene where literally he's like, do I have to tell you or can you just read it in my mind? And she's like, that's not how I work. You have to say it. Right. And OK, fair, because I said adult Gene would do it, too. And I guess adult Gene wouldn't do it, too. She would if she was mad. This is the thing about Gene. Yes, I didn't mean that she would just casually do it. And teen Jean does it in a way where she's trying to be helpful. And I agree that adult Jean wouldn't do that. But I do think that if adult Jean was pissed, she would just bring it up. Because that is kind of right. a thing she does sometimes. <laughs> well, that's the thing about it. Significantly, because she has been brought forward, one of the consequences is she has access to her telepathy earlier than she had. Way it. earlier than she had it in the original run. And she's yeah. blunter, I think. I think it's both true and untrue that 
late Jean would do it. Late Jean would know it and obviously must have known it. And so it's significant that we never see her react as an adult. But Right. Well, I mean, she's dead at the time. <laughs> right. So I think your read of late Jean is exactly right, which is that self-righteousness is something she enjoys. Yes. And being the most ethical person is something she enjoys. And not there is something about not bringing it up that in a weird way is part of the like it's a power play almost yeah exactly it's like gene could do it (laughs) and that's what emma's is also i do think she's genuinely trying to help him and i do think that the retcon establishing emma's gay brother was very smart because it gives her a rationale for that behavior with bobby Mm -hmm. she kind of treats him like a little yes she does always liked yeah i think that what's fun about that is that she is sort of playful about it emma's thing though she's focused on teaching she wants you to achieve (laughs) your best self gene is much more and this is what i was saying in the episode about sort of telling you what your best self would be and then expecting you to follow her advice right we had also just talked about new x-men 139 when she completely violates emma's mind right and she is pissed and has good reason to be pissed at Emma and also is back in touch with the Phoenix Force. So she's feeling a little ethically loose, let's say. But (laughs) I do think it's also very indicative of her character. And that was the context in which I said, I feel like adult Jean would just do it. But she'd have to be mad. You know whose adult Jean would definitely do it is Grant Morrison's adult Jean would have done it. Which is, yeah, the one I'm talking about. I mean, and I, that's my favorite Jean post-Dark Phoenix. Mm-hmm. And I mean, Brian Michael Bendis got a lot of flack for that too, right? Like, It's funny because I love Bendis as a writer, but I wasn't crazy about his X-Men run. It just wasn't for me. But the one thing I really loved was the way he wrote Jean. She felt very <laughs> correct to me. It felt like this right. is exactly what a 16-year-old Jean Grey who is given knowledge of all the shit that's going to happen to her in the future, this right. is exactly how she would behave. I mean, there's a tension here that is in larger... Basically in queer fiction, especially queer young adult fiction, which is for some reason, especially lately, we feel like coming out scenes now have to be like a manual of how to come Mm -hmm. out. And every character has to be perfect in how they deal with it. Exactly. Whereas actually, I think, again, this articulates a version of the queer experience that we don't often see, which is that I know a lot of gay male men who had someone else tell them they were gay way before they could admit it. (laughs) Absolutely. I was talking to a friend about the recent on-panel stronger implication that Kitty Pride is bi, which is something that has, of course, been hinted at since 1980. Since there was a Kitty Pride. Right. But (laughs) to actually sort of do it on-panel is bold and cool. And we were talking about mechanics the Claremont miniseries from the Extreme Era, where Karma has a crush on her that is like not reciprocated because Kitty's a straight girl. Claremont never wrote her particularly straight, but that's Karma's position. They were saying it would be kind of fun if like she comes out as bi now and Karma is like, you're just dabbling or whatever. Right. And then they were like, unfortunately, the readers would pillory the authors for having Karma express like any... Like, because the thing is, there are a lot of gay people who would feel a little annoyed if like they'd had a crush on their straight friend who didn't reciprocate because they were straight. And it's like, oh, actually now I'm bisexual and happy about it. Yeah. (laughs) Right. And it's like, it would be a normal human reaction to not be perfect there. But people would be like, you made karma biphobic or what, as opposed to you had a character express a thought that was perhaps imperfect. Like people should be allowed to be flawed. I don't know. And it's not like karma tweeted it. Right. No, exactly. She would just be an off the cuff reaction. (laughs) And then they would right. have a conversation about it and Carl be like, no, no, I'm sorry. I was just being a bitch, you know, or whatever. And we would right, move on. Right, right, right. 
<laughs> and as you say, I think it's a very Gene beat, especially because I do think, and there's angles here too, right? Like it is true that Brian Michael Bendis, as far as I know, and as far as he's publicly said, is a cis straight man. And actually he has a lot of leverage and a lot of power to have been able to because do this, of that, right? right. Like, it took a Brian Michael Bendis to finally say this, even though Marjorie Liu tried to right. say it. And Chuck Austin clearly tried to say it. Chuck Austin was not a notable when he took over that book, and his run was already controversial enough. Bendis took over the book as this luminary in comics who had revitalized the Avengers brand, which, as we discussed, was never enormously popular back in the day. Right. He had a lot more carte blanche, I think, to do big, wacky, crazy things. Right. And the other thing that making it Gene does... I agree. Like, this is not something you should do. It is something a 16-year-old would do, but it's not. I actually don't even have a problem with it because she does it to him in private. It's not like she says it in front of the whole team. And it's not like she took it out of his brain on purpose. She's just a 16-year-old telepath who's still figuring it all out. Who just had her telepathy activated. But it also skips, because she can actually see him more clearly than he can see himself, it lets Bendis do a bunch of things. Like, it lets her explain to him why does he talk in this like womanizing shitty way about women? Like, why does he feel compelled to do that? And even he's like, maybe I'm bi. And she's like, I think you're actually gay. And like, there's some biphobia there too. Well, except except I don't think so. So there was a reader question along those lines. Well, the biphobia I think is that she says full gay, which is like, it puts. (laughs) But that's also how people talk. I mean, again, like I don't, I I don't, and like, I know lots of bi people who talk that way. You know what I mean? Like, it's just, it's (laughs) colloquial. Like I just, I don't believe in characters needing to be moral exemplars exactly i'm just not someone who thinks that every character is supposed to be a model for behavior right and i think that when you get caught up in like no characters can be problematic it becomes stale because people are problematic we say things Every time I have a guest on, I and the guest will both say at some point on the podcast every week, can you go back and cut that line? Because something (laughs) came out in a way that was not necessarily what you intended or that was colloquial or whatever. And it was like, ooh, it's possible that someone might interpret that in a way that I didn't mean it. And in real life conversations, which the characters are supposedly having, that happens all the time. Right. And there's a tension here, too, because all the problems we're talking about are solved. There's more representation. Correct. So Scott D'Agostino writes, do you think it would have been more interesting if our Iceman didn't come out, meaning adult Bobby? Like he still considered himself straight, but now there's a very different version of himself running about. Feels like some potentially interesting discussions about bisexuality and identity were missed there. What do you think? And my take on that, I feel like we have this debate a lot. And like you said, it's about the fact that there aren't enough characters to go around. Because I personally, and I'm saying this as a quote unquote gold star gay or whatever, someone who came out young who has never been with a woman, etc. That's my personal experience. I think it's very important for there to be characters in our pop culture who are gay affirmatively, but who are not, quote unquote, gold star gays. Because I think it's very important to establish, especially with people who are conflicted and closeted like Bobby, that often you go through the motions for a long time and it doesn't mean you're bisexual. Right. It means that compulsory heterosexuality is a bitch, you know? 
And I think that in comics, we also had this conversation with Richter mm-hmm. when Richter was affirmatively made gay rather than bisexual. The er example for the old heads like us is, of course, Willow from Buffy. Right. I think personally that it is valuable and important to have these characters who say, no, I'm gay or no, I'm a lesbian. I just didn't realize. Right. Or I was lying to myself or whatever else. I also think it's important to have bisexual characters, particularly men, because there are lots of bisexual women characters now in comics. I mean, not enough. Sure. If you were going to go and do like a demographic percentage thing, but Particularly, I would say prominent female characters have been allowed to become canonically bisexual characters. Harley Quinn, Wonder Woman, Catwoman, DC's done a lot of it, but it happens at Marvel too occasionally. And I think it doesn't happen with men. And I think that there's a very obvious reason for that, which is that the target market for superhero comics primarily is a straight male audience that is going to be titillated by bisexual women, but is not going to want to read about Nightwing necessarily if Nightwing is bisexual. Right, right. So I understand the hunger for that, but I also think it is worth noting that before Iceman was gay, there was not a single major character at Marvel who was a gay man. And it solved a problem, as I've been saying throughout, like when homophobes want to be shitty to you as a creator and as a fan, they say, well, why don't you create your own? Right. Like that's always the, why don't you create your own? Right. And they say that to people of color. They say that all the time. And that becomes an attempt to wait them out, right? Right. I grew old waiting for a queer representation. Yes, exactly. And when you make one of the original five X-Men gay, you make a statement that reaches backwards. Yeah. It's a Lee Kirby character and he was gay all along. It's a big deal. Exactly. (laughs) But also going back to Scott's question, what I like and what is unique about the Iceman coming out is by the nature of how it happened, it created the exact dialogue you're talking about, where young Iceman was like, oh, I'm 16 and I'm gay. And he got to have the happy, pleasant, out 16-year-old experience. And Bobby, who is like maybe like 33, I don't know how old Bobby is supposed to be, but he's old. I read him as about 33. I know that Jordan White tends to want the original X-Men to be a little younger than that, but I see Hank as affirmatively like 35 and (laughs) Gene and Scott as like 34 and Bobby as like 32, 33. That's my read. And the fun thing about it was suddenly he was like, oh shit, I wasted all these years and this kid gets to have is living the life that I I didn't get to have and it's partly the sliding time scale right it was interesting actually Samantha Powell on uh, Twitter shout out to Samantha Powell she's been listening and she was like I finally googled sliding time scale after just nodding along to Connor on Cerebro every week (laughs) and the thing about the Marvel sliding time scale which if you're not familiar As Samantha pointed out, it's very similar to how soap operas operate, where characters will age, like children in particular, age rapidly and things like that. Or don't age. Or no one ages and they get recast with actors who are the same age as the previous actor was when they started. Correct. So... So you had like a Franklin Richards thing where yeah, where he's been <laughs> he's been five he was five for, for right. decades he was five for decades and then he was fourteen for decades right right <laughs> or the Jubilee thing which is why I loved Vampire Jubilee because it was just them it was to me a wink at like Jubilee's been seventeen since nineteen eighty nine or whatever <laughs> you know what I mean like right. that is really funny to me 
But the thing with the sliding time scale is the Marvel Universe as we know it, if you discount the Timely and Atlas stuff, starts in the 60s. The Fantastic Four go into space because it's the space race and we haven't landed on the moon yet. <laughs> right. Of course Bobby's not openly gay. It's 1963. Right, right. <laughs> This was the biggest issue I had with the Bendis premise. The all-new X-Men run. Yes. You can't have X-Men time travel from the past. <laughs> yeah. It was very you unclear You can only have the them come from the future. Because, right, <laughs> if these are the 60s X-Men, except right. <laughs> given the sliding timescale Marvel employs, they're now coming from, like, 1995. Right. They were variously written as like, like, do they know what a cell phone right. is? And do when they... they're drawn, when Beast goes and gets them, they're definitely the 60s X-Men. Except uh, that the earliest this story could be taking place is like 1989. You know? The cruelest thing about it, I thought, and maybe is too cruel to even think about, is the way this story ends is they have to return to the year they left. Yeah, it's horrifying. And, and they have to lose all their memories of... What they Which learned. Bobby is put back in the closet yep. and forced to live out. And he gets the memories as soon as Once, they leave, which is even crazy. Yeah. Because he's dated, he was dating a boy who is still a like a 16-year-old. I know. <laughs> it's like, oh. This is honestly the one problem I had with it. Because no matter how many protestations there were, like the traveling 05 are here to stay, their timeline's been disrupted or whatever, I knew there was no way. I knew that when Bendis' run ended, they were going to go back and... The toys had to go back in the box. To solve the paradox, they were going to have to have the memories erased. And I did find that idea very distressing. Because <laughs> it's, it's scary. <laughs> it's one thing for Scott to forget about his awesome Greg Rucka space adventure with his dad. It's one thing for Angel to forget about that time he was dating X-23. Because, like, you know what? He'll date lots of other ladies. It'll be fine. Like, his development is not stunted right. by this. Right. The two characters it's rough on are Gene and Bobby. Yeah. Although Beast has magic powers, which is pretty interesting. <laughs> I'm just... <laughs> at, at some point, I'm going to do a Hank episode. And the last 20 years have just not been kind to Hank McCoy. And it's going to be a <laughs> tough one. But, yeah, the idea that for the greater good... The solution, yay, everything's resolved, is that Bobby has to go back in time with no memories and be back in the closet for the next 20 years of his life. Right. And miserable. It's distressing. Yeah. It is the part of that. And I don't think it's supposed to make you feel good. You know, it's not like I think <laughs> right. Bendis no. is like, and it was no. all fine. But <laughs> I do think that because of the way it was done, that was an unavoidable consequence that is distressing and uh he does have i mean we skipped over the the mike carey marjorie lou years but he does he does have like the distress is a lot right like apocalyptic like yeah actually i think anyone who was a big fan of bobby you must read marjorie lou's astonishing x-men particularly the the bobby arc with walta as the artist mm -hmm. which is just amazing where it's again it's a storyline where this makes no sense unless it's about the closet where bobby is like he has the apocalypse seed and he's like He's created a permanent winter basically in all of New York and the city is being evacuated and it's because there is a thing he cannot say and he does not say it by the end of the issue, right. by the end of the story. I think that the Marjorie Lou and Mike Carey runs are really underrated for dealing with, like the Mike Carey run is all about Bobby and Mystique not talking the about The Mike Carey run is sort of underrated generally. Oh, it's so good. And again, the the Sam Guthrie cannonball stuff comes back. There's a There's an issue in it where 
Sam is badly wounded and Bobby won't leave his side. I really ship those two. Uh, I can't can't tell. But you also, as you were mentioning, that's also the part where Bobby like hooks up with Mystique, which again, if you're trying to imply that a male character has some fluid stuff going on in some way, banging Mystique Mystique. is pretty. Yeah, right. (laughs) Mystique can be anyone you want. Yep. She has a weird line because she poisons him during their sex, um, which is weird. <laughs> but, but she has a weird line where she's like, I coated my lips and other things. Honestly, that is like a very Faith and Xander moment to me, not to go back to Buffy, but it feels it feels very much that. And that, that's another character who was... Queer-coded. Originally, he was supposed to be the gay one. So, yeah, you know. Would have been a fascinating character. Would have been a way better character than the one we got, in my opinion, much as I love Anya. I mean, I've never thought about it, but as much as Buffy as character is Kitty Pride, Bobby is Xander. The wisecracking, the irony as a distraction. Well, it's also Doug, though. Oh, that's true. I mean, Doug is Doug, Doug and Bobby are very... Yeah, very <laughs> sort of connected characters in, in a lot of ways. Even before Marjorie Lou and Mike Carey, there's the Austin run, which, again, is infamous because of stories like the Draco and She Lies with Angels and other things that we all, <laughs> you know, don't adore. Stacey X. That was actually not him. That was Joe Casey. Oh, that's right. And yeah. her name was supposed to be X Stacy, which makes a lot more sense. It's ecstasy. Oh, that's a and well, Austin, I, love when a pun I think, pays fucked off that up. Yeah. <laughs> I actually kind of liked Stacey X. She's cool. The problem is everyone's shitty. Yeah, I think that a mutant sex worker is actually a really interesting character to bring into the X-Men. And I would like to see her on Krakoa doing stuff. If if someone would write her in a way that was thoughtful. She should come back. She absolutely should. To go back, though, the one Austin storyline that was very popular was Austin brings Northstar into the Mm X-Men and Northstar has this unrequited crush on Bobby, except if you read it, it does feel like (laughs) Bobby might requite it. Yeah. He just never does. And the metaphor is that his heart has been turned to ice. Yes. (laughs) He reveals to Annie Gazakanian, the OC that Austin brings in to bang havoc, The plot is Havoc has rejected Annie because he's back with Lorna, who, of course, Austin also just writes in a very, you know, whatever. We don't have to get into it. We'll get into that in a Lorna episode. Well, I mean, she's like a drag queen at her worst. In that she's book. crazy, <laughs> right? Yeah, like she, you know, I can't control it. Lorna has, over the years, occasionally had like Magneto's like space madness a few times. <laughs> I think that Peter David officially confirmed that she has bipolar disorder in his more recent X Factor stuff. And I think that that is interesting. And I like the idea of Lorna as a textually mentally ill character. But that arc, that's the Austin arc is just she's just a crazy psycho lady. Doesn't she in like the wedding gets called off and she like Alex calls off the wedding and she turns the silver wearing cutlery into a Magneto costume and tries (laughs) to kill Annie Gazakanian at the wedding. (laughs) That's right. And it's it's all because she's traumatized about Genosha is how they explain it away eventually. Right. But the point is, anyway, Bobby and Annie have both kind of been rejected because Bobby is upset that Lorna has no interest in him, which LOL. Again. And Alex and Lorna are getting married and Bobby and Annie kiss or whatever. And yes, the secondary mutation that Bobby's experiencing is when he's injured, his body is healing as ice and he can't turn it back. Right. And so it's literally his heart is now turned to ice. And Annie calls him out 
she's like, you're a racist. And he's like, what? And she's just like, you could never handle being a mutant that people can see. Right. Right. And it's the one kind of interesting thing about Annie Gazakanian, like, is that she <laughs> she calls him on it because she's like, you've spent your whole life as a mutant who's invisible. And now you're afraid because if you become an right. ice person all the time, you won't be able to hide. And yeah. she then rejects him, like, even though they kind of have a romantic connection for a moment, she's just like, no, actually, I'm going to go back to Alex, which right. is just his eternal, like, always going back to Alex. <laughs> when will Bobby and Alex make out is what I want to know, because that's... I, I always had a crush on Alex. Same, so which is really it's, it's a rough place to be, but he's so <laughs> hot. In the 80s, in the 80s and 90s, and such (laughs) a stupid asshole that it's just, it's much like my crush on Brian Braddock. I'm just like, yes, you're awful. Please make love to me. And yeah, it's it's bad. I understand that. I understand why Bobby would be into that. Yes, exactly. Right. There is an Eve Sedgwicky kind of thing where. That's literally what I was going to say. It's <laughs> very Eve Sedgwick. Them fighting over Lorna has an extremely. Yeah. Right. Google Eve At Sedgwick the... if you're unfamiliar for the flat scans. <laughs> Eve Sedgwick writes a book called Between Men. And Between it, the Men. Whole thing is by about Eve Kosovsky Sedgwick. Love triangles are actually often homoerotic relationships triangulating themselves through the female character. You know, it can happen with women too. I mean, the gayest thing that's maybe ever happened in the X Men is when Kitty is convinced to leave Piotr at the altar a couple years ago. Oh, yeah, yeah, Because Ileana is like, are you sure this is who you should be marrying? (laughs) Right. What Ileana means is you should be marrying me. You're marrying the wrong Rasputin. (laughs) Usually, though, it is boys. Well, even late in the run where Bobby is like, I wish Jean would take me on a date. It still reads as very much like, this is about Warren. Yeah, this is about Warren. It's that Warren and Jean are flirting and Uh, you wish that Warren was flirting with you. But Austin, I kind of like the, while we're thinking about North Star, like, it's a smart, like if you were assembling a cast to think about Iceman's sexuality, those are the three you put him near, right? You put him near Lorna, yeah. you put him near Havoc, and you put him near Northstar. Yes, absolutely. I kind of like that one of the things Bobby missed by coming out so late is he missed Northstar. Well, that's the most frustrating thing. And this goes back to what I was saying about how I think that unpowered love interests in the X-Men are very difficult. I think that Northstar's husband is kind of a dead end. Kyle. And it's unfortunate because obviously the story where they got married was important. He is also one of a very limited number of queer characters of color. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of reasons why I understand that they would be hesitant to sort of get rid of that character. Right. But I also think, and I've argued this on previous episodes, And I felt this about Wiccan and Hulkling, frankly, when they got married recently. It's not common for superheroes to get married. And they usually get married when they're retiring from the book, when they're getting written out. Mm. And that's because most of the interpersonal drama in superhero comics is romance stuff. There was a year where every gay superhero was getting engaged. Right. It's like Batwoman's getting engaged. First of all, to Maggie Sawyer, because no one was using Renee Montoya. But it's like, listen, if she's going to propose to anyone, it's Renee, first of all, <laughs> who like didn't even exist at that point because it was New 52. Secondly, Kate Kane doesn't want to get married. Right. Yeah, I mean... <sighs> This is why I like that Richter and Shatterstar are not together right now. Because you can do a thing where they wind up back together again because superheroes do that all the time. You look at Batgirl and Nightwing or Nightwing and Starfire. 
And it's like, which one of those couples is your favorite? Because don't worry, it'll come around again soon enough. (laughs) I just think that marrying North Star to a character who, like the original iteration of Madeline Pryor, is non-powered, is not a superhero, and has no involvement with anything that the X-Men are doing, takes North Star out of a lot of plot opportunity. Mm. And I think also sort of desexualizes the character in a way that I think is unfortunate for North Star, who should be like a gay playboy. (laughs) Because that's how he was always characterized. I don't know. I do think it's a shame that Bobby missed North Star. Well, there's a few things to respond to there, I think. It's hard to say, first of all, what Marjorie Lou would have done with a free hand. Right. Because again, she she wrote that wedding. Yes. And it's good. She wanted to out Bobby. If she had had her druthers, if the editorial hadn't interfered, was she marrying them so that she could play a love triangle? Right. Is a question. Another question is like, we don't actually know. I mean, you and I are both gay men and you and I both know that just because two gay men are married does not mean... That's certainly true. That's a hard one for the flats game, Yeah, no. We're also readers of these comics. The fact that a, a wedding doesn't actually mean that gay men have to be monogamous is something that is probably a little too outré for the flat scan readers at this point. <laughs> and here's the thing. Again, it's like we were saying about the coming out stories. There is this representational obsession with minority characters being these paragons of virtue or with everyone reacting in the proper way to things right and if north star and his husband had an open marriage and north star was on grinder all over krakoa i think there are a lot of people who would have an issue with it i do wonder about that i do wonder if you could do it now i don't know like i mean scott and gene or <laughs> i know i would trust leah williams to do it if anyone's gonna yeah, do it yeah. but I don't know. I think particularly the issue with Kyle is that he was barely established before the wedding. So there's also the sort of who is this guy? And then Trish Tilby, like I said earlier, is an investigative reporter. Lois Lane is an investigative reporter. Mary Jane in the 90s, part of the reason it really worked was that Mary Jane was a celebrity like Spider-Man. And so because she was famous and Peter wasn't, but Spider-Man was, it sort of took on a a Clark and Lois vibe where she had her own stuff going on. I think that the way, if you gave me those characters, the way I would think about it is the fact that Kyle as North Star's like publicist, representation is what they are about, right? Like, Yes, right. Optics. Like Kyle should have the canniness to know that that wedding was good PR. Absolutely. <laughs> and if they played it as their kind of party guys, you know, they have at the very least special guest stars or whatever, but they're very well aware <laughs> right. that they need to present to the public as this very heteronormative assimilationist couple, that would be fun. Yeah. Right now, it just feels like it's nothing to me. Or maybe the cool thing to do with it is maybe North Star is okay with North Star playing, but Kyle is not allowed to play. There has to be something, (laughs) right. And again, like that book is so fucking queer that I feel good about oh yeah leah can if i if anyone's gonna make me give a shit about that relationship it's for sure leah and again i liked the way marjorie lou wrote the wedding i just felt like it foreclosed options for the character that straight characters very rarely 
I mean, you can count the number of married X-Men on one hand. Right. And the ones they marry off are the ones who have been a couple for like 30 years. Well, that's the flip side of it is, like you mentioned Wiccan and Hulkling. Obviously, I, I'll t- tell that story. Yeah. The reason that works for me is that there are some characters who are like salt and pepper, where it's like they enter the stage together. Right. They're a pair. Yeah. They're always going to be a pair, although they are quite young. And if you think about their youth, it's kind of... That's what threw me, honestly, was how young... It, it felt like glee to me when all the teenagers got married. I was just kind of like, ah. <laughs> but there's a... There, again, to bring up Buffy, there's a thing where like... You do the one season of college and then they're adults. Right. No, this is a sliding time scale concern. Again, it's like, are they 25 or are they 17? I'm still not sure. And also, that's why, if you read my issue, that's why I was very specific and why the plot takes a moment to sort of linger on speed and Mm -hmm. prodigy. Because I did want to model... And I'm obviously there's literally perhaps no characters I'm more invested in than Wiccan and Hulkling. But right. I wanted to say, like, this is not the only way to be queer. And there are other right. ways to be like, I wanted it to be, again, what we said almost at the very beginning of this, where it's like the problem is solved if there's more representation. Yes. If there's lots of it, then, yeah, there's going to be God knows I have lots of friends who are like they are the most heteronormative model. Absolutely. And then you have like <laughs> there's a spectrum. And if you have enough pieces to tell that story then it matters less. I just think North Star should be a Zachary Quinto type, if you get what I mean. Sure. You know, it just, he doesn't feel to me like that guy. But in that case, you teach the problem, right? Like, if it were me, and maybe someday it will be me, but like, Iceman missed the boat, and you tell the story of him being like, damn, I missed the boat. Like, you can show it instead of just like... I Yeah, I just think the issue, and the specific issue there with Bobby and Jean-Paul is that... There's now an optical problem. Right. Which is that if you have Jean-Paul dump his black husband for Iceman, there's an optical problem. Right. And this goes back to something you were saying about passing privilege. Yeah. The Austin run. Like, Bobby has passing privilege. Bobby passed a straight longer than most people live. Right? Correct. (laughs) There's also the fact that it was the first big gay marriage. So if you undo that marriage, people are going to feel like you're throwing out right. this important story. Honestly, it gets into a lot of the problems that Storm and T'Challa have had, right. where writers have now been circling the drain on that relationship since 2006, when it was done by Reggie Hudlin's explicit admission to take the two most prominent black characters at Marvel and have them get married right. as a way to draw in minority readership. That was the idea. And now that relationship has become symbolically important to a lot of people, even though, in my opinion, and in the opinion of a lot of fans and clearly a lot of writers, I don't think it particularly serves either character. But it's extremely difficult for anybody to get them out of it right. because they were one of the only prominent black couples in comics. This goes back to the thing about like writers versus readers. Like, There is a thing where the reader thinks they want something. And as a writer, it's your job to know not to give it. Right. (laughs) Like Spider-Man marrying Mary Jane has been a problem for decades now and led to like the most reviled storylines to break them up. Because once they're married, that story kind of ends and comic books can't end. With Clark and Lois, they've rebooted the universe like four times. (laughs) And Marvel doesn't do that. 
So right. instead, you have to do things like Scott's wife is a clone who sells her soul to the devil. <laughs> like you have to find a way out of it. And when it works, it and works. that one Inferno's works. Great, Inferno's right? great. Yeah. <laughs> so we just need an Inferno, maybe. Oh, yeah, I like them together. I like, like to be honest. I feel like we haven't seen enough of Kyle and Northstar yet. Well, but that's sort of the thing is it's been a long time now since the wedding, and I feel like I still know nothing about that character. Right. So I'm hopeful. Right. I mean, listen, I actually think it's a very interesting time for human love interests. I was saying on the Nightcrawler episode, I want Amanda Sefton to come back. In the Storm episode, I was saying, I want Yukio to come back for a lot of reasons that are Storm related. But <laughs> I want to dig into that because like Kyle, and this was said in the Ten of Swords handbook that came out last Wednesday, Kyle got a special dispensation to live on Krakoa. Right. Because he's North Star's spouse. What does that mean? How does he feel about that? Yeah. He must feel like a bug in a jar. Yeah. Right? Like, and I mean, like, yeah. I don't think Amanda Sefton would be into Krakoa. I think she would find it weird. <laughs> I agree that a, a, a human mutant storyline is interesting. It's not the storyline I'd give Bobby. No, 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 no. I mean, you watch writers struggle to find a pair for Bobby. Like, there was the... The pyro relationship. Yeah, which that's just, unfortunately then, and like I'm glad they did because he's a great character, but then they brought back the real pyro. Real pyro. This is the <laughs> problem with legacy characters is like, you know, they, they are always, this is Renee Montoya's problem is eventually, without fail, the straight white guy version of the character is going to come back. It's just a thing right. that's going to happen. Yeah, I think it's a problem the Wolverine thing is having too. Right? Yeah, where they don't know what to do with Laura because he's mm. back. Actually, the Marvel example that I think is very, very, very clear and salient is Jane Foster. Mm. They're like, Jane is Thor now. Jane will always be Thor. And it was like, that's just not true. We all knew it wasn't true at the time. And now Thor is Thor and they have to figure out what to do with Jane. And so they made Jane Valkyrie, except now I think they're bringing in the Tessa Thompson Valkyrie character in this miniseries that's coming up. Mm. And that character is enormously popular. So if she, as she probably should, becomes the main Valkyrie, where does that leave Jane Foss? Like, this is the problem that you get when you pass the mantle to a character who is marginalized in some way that the original character wasn't. Right. But it can be generative. Like, I do think that legacy character, like, I'm just thinking about, like, the Red Hood is one of the greatest innovations in Batman lore, right? So... Well, and listen, Ironheart's great. Yeah. I mean, there are ways to make it work, but you have to accept the fact we need to give this character a unique identity. Yeah, but maybe you let them, maybe you let them use the legacy as sort of... A jumping off training point, wheel. absolutely. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the problem is that so often, I mean, I would like for them to bring back that gay pyro and just give him a new code name. Yeah, he was fun. I liked him. He was like, he was cool. <laughs> He's the one that I think worked the most. I like that he was just like, I'm not really that into this, though. Like, it was just sex. Bye. And Bobby's like, what? Yeah. And Bobby learned a yeah, lesson. Yeah, right? a lesson about gays <laughs> that was important for him to learn. Uh, and now he's with, he seems to be with Christian. So I love that, except I said this on an earlier episode. I love the Arden Marauders, but I want them to draw Christian. The beefy Christian. Like the 40-year-old man that he ought to be. Right. Because I love the idea of Christian Frost, Emma's brother, being Bobby's sugar daddy who's helping him find himself. <laughs> I think that's hysterically funny. And the Daughterman cover of the two of them, it looks exactly right. 
But in the book, the way Christian's currently drawn, he looks younger than Emma to me. Right. He looks the same age as Bobby, and he should be about 10 years older than Bobby, which I think is an interesting potential facet to that relationship that I would enjoy seeing them tease out because he's been out since he was young, and he's older than Bobby, and he has all this money. There's stuff that could be interesting there. But I think that he also, he should be, to me anyway, just rereading Cine Grace's run and even thinking about the Grant Morrison run, like he's been out longer, but he has been tormented. Traumatized and put into conversion therapy and all kinds of shit. Yeah. yeah. And starved. We get told that he was starved in that conversion mm-hmm. therapy. So it's like the sugar daddy thing makes sense to me as like a financial situation, like take him to some soirees. But I don't know if he knows the ropes, you know, like I feel like they have similar closet traumas. Well, but if you go to the Carl Baller's Emma Frost book, the thing that triggers his descent into substance abuse that creates the new X-Men Grant Morrison situation, because he's not established as gay there, he's established as gay in the Emma Frost book, is that their father finds out he's gay and arranges to have his boyfriend deported. Right. He was living an out life. It's not like he was put into conversion therapy as a teenager. His father basically stipulated, if you want my money, you have to do this now. Oh, so maybe the way to think of him is like an Edward the Second. Yes, of thing. it's that. Yeah. Yeah. What I really love is that he just f- killed his dad. Well, that's yeah. Great. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's great. really good. And, and I mean, listen, like that guy sucked. Like I'm all for. Yeah. You know. No tears for no. that one. <laughs> I really enjoy what they're doing with Christian and Marauders. I just want him to be a daddy. Mm, I get it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it would be fun for Bobby. And also, that's a very real gay community thing. And we don't have any of that in... Well, I guess now we have Hercules and Novar. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's fine. But, you know, that's that's a different vibe. That's a, that's a Greek myth kind of vibe, frankly. <laughs> there was a moment in the, the Jeff Lemire run... And Jeff Lemire has talked pretty publicly about how there was a lot of pressure from editorial to make the Inhuman stuff work and the stories he told weren't quite the ones he wanted to tell. But again, like for two decades, no one could say that Bobby was gay. Right. So it's like Bobby is in that book. There's a discomfort like it's the adult Bobby. It's happening while Bendis is writing Young Bobby. He hasn't yet come out. But there was a moment where Colossus had that huge beard. So hot. And he had put on some weight. And I was like, is this going to happen? Are they going to fuck? No, because that's the other thing. It's like, (laughs) here's the thing. No, I don't think Iceman should be bisexual. I think Colossus should be bisexual is what I think. Oh, yeah. (laughs) That's what I think. Because guess what? I've been with plenty of bisexual men and Colossus vibes hard. Colossus is, yeah. I mean, he was gay in the in the ultimate, books, but I'm that, just saying, like, and that felt very organic. It right? did. Like, that felt as organic as his steel bod. And <laughs> I, I'm just saying, Colossus as a bisexual guy who's never said it out loud, but occasionally fucks a man, would be extremely natural as an evolution of that character, based on oh, a yeah. lot of men I have known in my life. And when they had him grow that, like very gay beard i was like this is gonna happen i saw that art and i was like oh it's happening it's It's happening happening. and then it didn't happen (laughs) and then it was him and kitty again i was like god damn it or was that he had like two breakdowns in a row yeah i forget which breakdown now when i was saying it, i was like what is the order of his spirals well the problem (laughs) with the problem with colossus is that because of the sliding time scale it's kind of like the teen bobby issue colossus no longer can possibly have lived in the soviet union So in the same way, Bobby's parents probably did not fight in World War II. (laughs) But the problem is that Colossus, I mean, like it works fine for magic because she's 
limbo. Like she's not a Soviet character in that way. Right. But Colossus is so specifically about that thing in pop culture. In the same way karma is so connected to Vietnam yes. and the Vietnam War. And it's like Karma's what? a Vietnamese yeah. boat refugee. And it's like you yeah, can't quite well the real thing and i don't think this is why they did the maximoff retcon but the one thing about the maximoff retcon is the maximoff children wand and pietro are the children of the holocaust right like their parents right a romany woman and a jewish man meet at auschwitz yeah and unfortunately while you can make it work for magneto and xavier because they've been killed and de-aged like 20 times uh-huh wanda and pietro being born in like 1945 i think they're now fro they were frozen for a while were they frozen the, the new thing was that they were frozen by the high evolutionary oh he, like, okay well put, then they can still he, be magneto's was... kids then just put it back for god's sake <laughs> i'm pretty sure that's the remender run that they were put in deep freeze for a few decades. Legion is the other one where it's like a little messy because oh, Gabby yeah. Haller very specifically has to be a Holocaust survivor. So Right. But see, that's a thing that we don't do anymore where it's like Claremont used to hook things straight into history. Yeah, Storm's origin story is the Suez Crisis. Right. <laughs> but that's because back in the day, the characters were allowed to age. Right. Because when Claremont's writing that, the Marvel Universe, as we understand it, has only been around for like 15 years. Right. So it's fine to tie things to actual <laughs> events in history. It's fine to have a Christmas issue every year. Right. You know, it's fine for Kitty Pride to have birthdays on panel. But at a certain point, when the characters would be 60 if they continued to age, <laughs> editorial was like, we got to cut this out. <laughs> well, it happens. I mean, the Krakoa thing, however long this is the new status quo. Hopefully a long time. I love it. Kind of solves and aggravates it. <laughs> it's like, it's fun. Well, I pointed out, like, is Sink the same age as Monet? Or did he come back the age he was when he died? Oh. The Hellions are back now. Are they the same age as the New Mutants? Or are they all 16 again or 17? Because that would be fucking weird. Right. And here's the answer. They're never going to tell us. Right, and that's right. exactly what they shouldn't. That yeah. They should never answer that question. No, never. Because <laughs> it would fuck up the character relationships too much. And so it's fine to keep it vague, but it also does further exacerbate the X-Men student problem of the New Mutants, Generation X, and the Academy X kids are now all essentially the same age. <laughs> right. <laughs> and so now they're all competing for page time in the same age cohort, which is just problematic and there's no good way to fix it. Right. But you only notice if you look and you don't have to look. You don't have to look. That's what I'm saying. Like, as far as I'm concerned, you know, Empath is on the Hellions, the new Hellions, and like Tarot is back, which I screamed when I saw the Tarot info page. <laughs> I texted Teeny Howard actually the minute I read it. I was like, Marie-Ange Colbert in my Ten of Swords creation issue? In your lifetime. I know. You never thought you'd see the day. Well, they brought her back a couple times. Jordan White actually let Penn Gillette bring her back for his like one-off issue where he wanted to do a stage magician thing. Oh. And before that, King Bedlam had resurrected her briefly in the 90s. So Tara has popped back up a couple of times. But the fact that it was like, here's Marianne Colbert and she's factoring into a company-wide event <laughs> was like startling and, and delightful to me. And that she was very <laughs> French the whole time. She was just like, mm, I do not know what the cards are saying to me. <laughs> How you say, you know, I'm like, I fucking love this. Anyway, point is, are Marie-Ange and Empath and Roulette all the same age again now? I'm going to say yes. Right. And let's just never address it, you know? 
Yeah. And what age is that? Never right. mind. What age is that? <laughs> Roughly 25. The same age as yeah. all the new mutants. And we'll just, yeah. we're just going to roll with I get this that. question a lot. I mean, we talked about Wiccan and Hulkling already. And it's like, people were asking, like, how old are they? And it's like, well... I wrote them drinking, so I guess they're 21. Like, I feel like that class, so to speak, of Young Avengers are now like vaguely 21, 22, right? Yeah. But like at the yeah. same time, Kitty Pride and the original New Mutants are now like vaguely 25 to 27. But the original right. yeah. X-Men are now vaguely like 33 <laughs> to 35. So everyone's getting closer and closer in asymptotic. age. Asymptotic. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I noticed this when I did the Cyclops episode. When he confronts Corsair and you first see the plane crash flashbacks and all of that you see that for the first time when he's with lee forrester and despair triggers his memories but when he confronts corsair about it he says the plane crashed 20 years ago and right. it's established that he was 10 years old when the plane crashed which means that in that issue in the 80s scott is 30 years old and so that is my evidence i support hickman's claim that scott is in his 30s i love jordan white but i am going to point to that on panel evidence but now he's still like 30 and Kitty Pride was 14 there. Right. Yeah. Everybody just sort of gets closer <laughs> in age and we all accept that. But it does create the five Robins who are all the same age problem eventually. Yes. He's really tearing through those kids. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> in like six months. Right. It's like I was Robin for three weeks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's like a it's like a two week course. Yeah, exactly. Like, it's it's a <laughs> Robin It's an associate's degree. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you don't think about it. This is the answer. We've now been talking for almost three hours. So Whoa. yeah, no, I know. And people who are listening now are going to be like, no, they haven't. And that's because a lot of this shit gets cut, my friends. I went to pee. Yeah, there's like whole <laughs> whole Robins have come and gone in the time that we've been recording this. So in any case, I think now's a good time to make you play my game, which is the Real Housewives game. Yep, 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 yep. I prepared. So if Bobby Drake were a cast member on The Real House is Krakoa, what would his tagline be? Oh boy. Okay, I have 20. There we go. How many do you want to hear? <laughs> I don't have any because I just find the men harder, honestly. So I forgot to do it and then was like, shit, I'm just going to let you go. Read as many of them as you want in succession. <laughs> okay, so I started raunchy. I'll give you more than just the tip of this iceberg. Love that. <laughs> uh, I asked a friend, Mike, who said, I might be icy, but I'm not frigid. I feel like he might be, though. He has, like, a prudish energy. He is. That's what Christian's going to deal with. Right. And then I did basically variations on The Iceman Cometh. <laughs> the Iceman Cometh? Buy me a drink first. Oh. Uh, the Iceman Always Cometh Twice, but not until you do. I want Christian for us to open a gay bar in Krakoa called Homo Superior. I really <laughs> feel strongly name. about this. And i that's a free idea. I won't sue someone to mm. that, please. Thank you. I have some drag characters I'd like to bring into that. Mm -hmm. uh... And then Warren loses a bet with Christian and has to uh, be the shirtless bartender for like a week. <laughs> I have story ideas for Homo Superior, the gay cheers of Krakoa. Oh, me and Leah want to do a story about like a drag bar thing. Because I, uh, in the Wiccan and Hulkling books, I keep bringing on this character named Crystal Macron. Oh, please. I clocked that <laughs> the minute you did. I would really it, like yes. to explain to people why she seems to know so much about X-Men lore. Well, that's the thing is the question I did have, I was like, that's cute. But Tony, how does this random drag queen know about the Macron crystal? <laughs> because I will tell you that I know exactly how she knows about I it. I love but... that for her. And I wish to know more. 
Okay, and then I moved out of the like raunchy zone, and then I was like, okay, what would what would be like badass? And I was like, many are called, few are frozen. And then I was like, I'll make you weak at the freeze, freeze the day. The best thing in life are freeze. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the snow. Mm, that's, Did you like that okay, one? that's no? not bad. Here's the thing: you need a new one for each season. So I'm glad that right. you know, like, because I I think he'll be on that show for years. Right. So then I was like, maybe there's some. Christian and Emma drama on the show. Ooh. So I was like, maybe we could have like, you can watch these other queens in white, but we all know I'm the best in snow. Ah, that's, Do we that's, like? that has several things going on <laughs> at the same time. I trimmed my cubes for this. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> Snowman is an island, colder and wiser. Be chill, my beating heart. Okay, how about this one? Some boys are friends of Dorothy, but I'm the Blizzard of Oz. Okay, that's we're gonna. I'm gonna cut you <laughs> off right there. <laughs> One more. Um, frosts may come and frosts may go, but at the end of the day, the winter takes it all. Oh, I need. No? I need. I need to put a stop to this now. Before <laughs> I've this game was a mistake, and I <laughs> apologize. I killed it. I killed the game. No, no, that was really good. That was really good. <laughs> I, I don't know how long this game is going to survive on this podcast because like poor Darcy last week was just like, what is The Real Housewives? And I was like, well, shit. Oh, I also I also have never seen The Real Housewives. It's good. <laughs> As I said, I have Bobby's biography. So like sometimes I have huge queer blind spots and this is one of them. So. I'll give you an essential Housewives viewing list at some oh, point. Oh, good. I can't wait. We'll kibitz about it. Or actually, at some point, I'll just come up to Toronto and sit you down and force you to watch. What is the season to watch? Um, Honestly, the first two seasons of Jersey. This is what we're doing right now instead of story recommendations for Iceman. <laughs> the first two seasons of Jersey are iconic. Basically, any season of Atlanta you can watch, and it's a wild, fantastic ride. Season three of Roni is incredible. It's when they go to Scary Island. I'm sorry, Scary Island? Like a Scooby-Doo? Well, it's not what it's actually called, but they call it Scary Island because Kelly Ben Simone has like a complete nervous breakdown and they're all okay. stuck on an island together. And it's um, okay. it's pretty wild. I don't know. We'll talk more about this off, uh, <laughs> off air. Let's circle back to story recommendations. I feel like we've kind of already done this. I feel like the one we didn't cover that obviously if you're like, oh, I should get to know this character is obviously the Sinna Grace Iceman run. Yeah, the solo book. Sinna's wonderful. We are friendly. I adore him. Everything with Emma in that book is great. And it's the period of Emma that I don't address on this podcast immediately following <laughs> Inhumans versus X-Men. So when I say I like it. Well, I mean, it's also a queer man writing a queer character, which in all of the history we've covered, we did not have that until now. So. Yeah, not at Marvel anyway. I mean, it's yeah. really, I'm trying to think of like, the is that the first time that happened at Marvel? It honestly might be. As a writer, out gay men, I meant for Bobby. But I'm literally Bobby, but... talking about like period. Writers. I mean, there's definitely artists. Right, but no, I'm saying writer. Yeah, I don't know. I wouldn't want to be definitive, but I would have to think about it. But anyway, because of that, Bobby's challenges are more specific. As you said, like, there does tend to be a tendency when straight people write gay characters. It's like, I guess they get married. Right, like, yeah. What else? <laughs> One thing I really appreciate about the way Bobby's written right now on Marauders, which I would recommend, is he's allowed to be fun and flirty and sexual. And it feels like Duggan gets it to me. Right. 
Yeah, yeah. The vibe feels, in the way that Claremont, who is, as far as anyone knows, not a queer person, wrote a lot of very authentic feeling to me, queer relationships in his run. I think that there are writers who do that. I do wonder if if Claremont had paid half a second of attention to Bobby, what would have happened? But he doesn't tend to queer his men. He tends to queer his women. I think he does queer his men, but I don't think he knows he's doing it in the same way <laughs> right. that he knew he was doing it with the women. Do you know what I'm saying? Right. Like, yeah, I agree with that. Because there's certainly a lot a of very, like everyone in the Claremont run is pretty bisexual, but with the women, you can tell he meant to do it. Whereas with the men, right. I'm sometimes like, did he mean to do this? And sometimes I think, yes. I mean, certainly North Star was always yeah. meant to yeah. be gay. But it's less clear to me. It, like whenever there's sort of Scott and Logan stuff that vibes curiously or like Kurt and <laughs> right. Logan you stuff that vibes. You can't have the, the Krakoa stuff without. The know. queerness of Wolverine, which is definitely a thing that now they're playing oh, with sure. on Krakoa. I mean, you want to talk about Eve Sedgwick, Eve. like <laughs> Logan and Scott. Yes! He's like, it's the classic cowboy thing. Boys, don't fight over me. It's like, you're very barely part of well, this. Well, and, <laughs> and also Logan and Sabretooth, which is this whole oh, thing, boy. which is like, again, as we said, like fucking Mystique, pretty queer. And right. Sabretooth has a child with her. So Sabretooth is like Sabretooth's whole thing is that he's like he is a sexual menace, right? Like that is. Yeah, well, he's honestly he's particularly in how he's presented early on. I mean, in the issue where Psylocke joins the X-Men, it's a very explicit like there's a scary rapist guy in the house. Yeah. I mean, that's a very Mm -hmm. specifically the the vibe. So, yes. And Dokken actually was introduced in that same vein, but with the added like depraved bisexual thing. Right. Which is all. All in the Cinegrace run too, listeners, if you're looking for... <laughs> What's interesting about that to me is that is a, a case where I think, again, it's about representation because when you look at Leah Williams's current X Factor book, Dakin is a stereotypical bisexual character, but Prodigy is not, and they're both in the book. Right. <laughs> and so it's okay for Dakin to be a non-monogamous, slutty... I think she calls him a disaster by at one point. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and that needs to be allowed because it's like queer vampires, right? Like there's such a history of that sexual threat being an important part of our pop culture thing. And I don't right. want us to say gay characters and bi characters and other queer characters can't be bad or can't be slutty or can't be predatory right i mean i think that it's important to have all of that i do think that as we've sort of agreed the answer is for there to be more characters because when there are 20 of them it's (laughs) just less objectionable for one of them to be unsavory yep wholeheartedly agree i'm trying to think of any other bobby stories i would super recommend again 319 if you're gonna read one of those 90s stories i think that uncanny 319 where he takes rogue home to his parents is a really really good one for that specific vibe the like gay bobby thing i think also he's probably the least significant of the main characters in it but he's good in the simonson x factor because they all are yeah it's weird we didn't talk about the x factor stuff um, because it's, it's never about really him that's line. the thing is he's yeah. a supporting character like the whole time and that's sort of been mm. his role really the 90s as you identified is one of the only times until they gave him a solo book that he's been center stage in that way i would say one issue that we didn't talk about that I always think of as being quintessential Bobby and specifically Bobby as sort of this queer allegory 
is X-Men Unlimited number eight, mm. where the X-Men get a new student, Chris Bradley, who has these like lightning powers. And it's like the classic, like, you know, the story going in. He has powers. He freaks out. He's brought to Xavier's school and like he's going to be the new student. Right. Um, and it's playing all the beats. And then all of a sudden the penny drops that he has the legacy virus. Yeah. And it be- and his re- his relationship with Bobby is the spine of the story that Bobby is identifying with this kid. And then this panic about the virus kicks in. Um, and obviously you've talked before about the legacy virus being very on the nose. <laughs> yeah, I hate the legacy virus, but that is a good issue. It's one of the only times that it feels like the legacy virus story is actually engaging with... The queer element of it? The AIDS metaphor? Yeah. yeah like, exactly. So if you're going to do it, you might as well engage with it, right? Right. I think I agree on all points. And it's really the problem of the original X-Men 2 where it's like, this is a metaphor for something, but the optics are all straight people. Well, <laughs> so right. Like, yeah. What are, <laughs> what are you really saying? And that really is part of why I love the Claremont run so much, because like Storm is not heterosexual and Kitty is not heterosexual and Wolverine frankly is not heterosexual and those three characters (laughs) are the main characters of that run right but yeah I love that issue it's really strong Chris Bradley has come back and died he didn't die in that story he goes home Mm. which is itself like okay that's how Xavier is dealing with the virus is sending people away because they're an infection threat that's classic um, Charles though oh my god (laughs) Let's be honest. <laughs> and then Chris ends up getting hooked into the Maverick storyline. Oh, Maverick also yeah. had legacy, but that, that it's basically a one shot, as most of the X Men Unlimited stories are. Um, and I really recommend looking at that. Is there anything else Bobby related you want to touch on before we start to wrap up? Who would you cast? Ooh, so the tricky thing is like what age? Yeah, and so it depends on where they're taking that age-wise and how they're yeah. adapting. People are always it. asking me who I'd cast as Wiccan and Hulkling and it's like, I literally am too old That's my to big problem with, who- yeah, <laughs> when they're like, who would you cast as such and such and and the character is younger than 30, I have a lot of trouble like coming up <laughs> right. with who I would choose. So here's the thing. I have gone on rants on this podcast about how I really, really, really would like them to cast Jewish actors as Magneto and Kitty uh-huh. in the MCU because that almost never happens. And I think that with those two characters in particular, it's very important. I don't feel that way about Bobby. Right. Because, first of all, he's mixed heritage, but also like it's not a big part of his story or anything. So that's not something I'm super... Yeah fussed about the absence kind of signifies there yes. right? like his father has been so dominant that his mother's like it would be very shocking if he knew much about his Jewish and also heritage. unlike kitty who does look jewish despite that conversation where bendis has her say that she doesn't in the classic stuff she certainly does mm. bobby doesn't back to passing privilege right bobby passes yeah, it's important bobby, that bobby is passes. an army hammer or gwyneth paltrow type where you don't know they're jewish until <laughs> they tell you so right, right. Again, that wouldn't bother me. But what I would like is I would like them to cast a gay actor in the role. Mm, That's tough. Yeah. And that I think is important. And so that's the issue is I don't have enough of a sense of like gay actors who are 30. Who's interestingly wrong for it then? Who would you have cast? (laughs) Yeah. Because I was thinking I would go to like an Adam Brody place. Or even like a Max Greenfield place. Max Greenfield could maybe do it. I would cast Jonathan Groff. 
Oh, that's interesting. Or like a Zac Efron. Zac Efron is Jewish. He is. And has the same kind of passing privilege But he's too... Jonathan Groff is right. No, Zac Efron does not have passing privilege. First of all, his name is Zac Efron, which is about as Jewish as you can be. (laughs) And he looks Jewish. Which, like, again, there's no one way to look Jewish. I'm talking about, like, the stereotypical whatever. But he plays, like, what's his name? High School Musical. He played Gentiles when he was a twink. Right now, it's a very he's a very hairy Jewish man. It's a different vibe. Oh, now he couldn't do it. No, no I, mean, I actually yeah, saw I mean, someone suggest then. that he would be fun casting for Wolverine now, and I actually think I that would be hilarious because he's pretty much the right height. And if you look at him right. on his recent <laughs> reality docu series, he's aging into that type of person, which is funny if your mental image of him is High School Musical. Right. Um, but no, I, I think J- Jonathan Groff is like 35. And so again, it would depend on what age they want those characters. But in terms of the Bobby in my head, who's certainly like in his early 30s, I think that would be good. I feel like Jonathan Groff's character on Looking is like a very Bobby type character. That's yeah. Oh, I see that. Yeah. Oh, that's good. That's he's good. also like funny and he can do, I mean, if you watch like Mindhunter, he can do the very like straight acting thing that Bobby intentionally tries to do. (laughs) That's the one thing is I do feel like Bobby's gotten a lot gayer since he came out. I feel like we skipped some steps with him. Yeah. That I would. I feel like we really skipped some steps. Yeah. That that's why I like Sinna's run so much is it's like, Oh, I don't know how to do this. Like he literally kisses his first boy in that mm-hmm. in that run, and it's like, and he t- comments immediately like, "Oh, it's scratchier than right. I expected to be." <laughs> right? Like he he need he would be going a little slower, I think. Um, yeah, Jonathan Groff is genius. Yeah, that's, that's who I would go with. But I felt the need to open with the I don't think that this needs to be a Jewish actor for a Jewish character. I think that's important when it's important to the character. Is how I feel about that. Right, and particularly with characters who quote unquote look Jewish I think it's important because actors who look Jewish as I discussed in the Colossus episode with Matt Lipchansky tend to be cast as like Arabs right (laughs) or Latinos like Mark Margolis on Breaking Bad playing Tio Hector Salamanca and then the characters who were named Margolis and therefore presumably Jewish were played by wasps so it's like trickle down whitewashing essentially all three of them were incredible on that show but there's considerations Anyway, point is, Jonathan Groff would be my pick. Adam Brody is good. But he's, again, he's too old now. Adam Brody would have been good. I mean, that's the thing. Is like, well, whenever people ask me about who I'd cast as Wiccan and Hulkling, it's like, well, they're basically Alan Heinberg doing the thing he wasn't allowed to do on the OC. Right. right? Where it's like, oh, like, Wiccan and Hulkling are obviously Adam Brody and um, what's his name? The guy who played Ryan. Um, the one who's married to Marina Bakharin now, who did Gotham. I can't think of his name because he's just Ryan yeah. from the OC to me. Sorry, no offense to you, guy. You're a good actor. I just... But like, that's what he was doing. And it's like, that's who you cast. But now they're too old. It would be cool to see a gay Bobby depicted on screen. That would be really nice. To yeah, do. it would. And especially after, again, like, fuck Brian Singer. But that was pushed so hard in those movies that I mm. think it would be nice to just do it. I like your pick for Jonathan Groff precisely because he both on stage and off stage has thought so much about playing the closet exactly he can do both yeah that like it's a thing he's done it's a thing he's navigated he also had like a later public coming out than most even though obviously i doubt he was right like, right privately. no exactly <laughs> like, well so did zachary Quinto. i mean like who be... who he dated i don't know there are a lot of options. my big thing is that i want an openly gay actor in that part yeah 
Agreed. I think it's important. And I think Marvel gets that. I mean, there was a lot of discourse around the Eternals, which the thing that's (laughs) weird about that is that I feel like that was going to be part of the press tour for Eternals, but now Eternals has been delayed like three times because of COVID. And so we're still in this weird negative zone where they said they were going to cast an openly gay actor, but the actor they cast is not openly gay yet. Right. So God, what a world yeah. we live in. I mean, it does feel like Wiccan and Hulkling are headed our way in these Marvel movies. Like, well, or at least at Disney Plus. I mean, they're bringing Kate Bishop, they're bringing yeah. Kamala Khan. I feel like there's a Young Avengers thing shaping up pretty clearly. Yeah, which I would love to get my hands on. So. As I say in every episode where I have a guest who I think would be great on something, it would be fantastic to read a Young Avengers book written by you. I would enjoy that very much. Thank you. I have the first three arcs ready to go. Well, it's like whenever someone mentions Madeline Pryor on this <laughs> podcast and I have to stop and be like, I can't talk too much about Madeline Pryor because I have a pitch document about the <laughs> Madeline Pryor miniseries that I want to write before I die. So if anyone at Marvel is listening, please feel free to call me. I would love nothing more than to talk about my insane... We could do a crossover. Yeah. It'd be great. Listen, Maddie and Wiccan, the Demiurge, would actually have a lot to talk oh about. God. Also, like... That little gay boy would love Madeline Pryor. Are you kidding? He called himself Finally Wiccan. Finally, someone who gets Madeline Pryor. Yeah, I know. He would be obsessed. He'd be like, you should meet my mom. And Maddie would be like, yeah. uh, it's the whole thing there. You don't, you don't have to go there. He would try on that dress. Yeah, he would be like, he would make a version of that cut off top with the titty window. He would be like, where did you get that brooch? And she'd be like, oh, Nastir gave it to me. And like, I don't know. It's like a Limbo original. And he would try to find a knockoff. Right. Maybe he finds that gem. Where'd that gem go? Does she still have it? She had it it in Hellions. Except now it's been red for a while, like Ileana's Bloodstone. And actually in the Sylvester stuff in Inferno, it's just gold. There's no red gem in the center. Was it ever a plot device? No, it's never been been a plot device. However, I have thoughts about that. Could it be? It certainly could be. Because guess what Limbo loves? A Bloodstone. The Prior Stone. Yeah, like I've got lots of... Lots of thoughts about that. Anyway, point is... Can I just say, I her name is amazing. Madeline Pryor. Madeline Pryor. But you know what's weird is it was just the name of a singer that Claremont liked. Are you kidding? I always thought... I thought it was Pryor because she's... Obviously, it's a joke of it. That's the retcon. That's the retcon. She says that in Inferno. She's like, I realize now that Sinister named me Pryor because I had a prior life as Jean Grey. But even Madeline, I thought Madeline was a Vertigo joke because she's the woman no, who she, places a woman that is the original woman. No, because she wasn't. Like Madeline is the name of the I know, but she wasn't supposed to be a clone or anything when she was introduced. Oh, that's of course. That's right. It would, it would be a reference. <laughs> it, oh. The whole, the, it's, all, it's so all retroactive. No. Maddie Pryor, she's a folk singer. She was the vocalist of Steel Eye Span. I think she still is. She's like a British singer. I mean, Claremont loved... I mean, mean, the man never... I love him so much. Like, he never had an original idea, right? Like, everything is pulped. Everything is I wouldn't go that far, but he draws heavily on various influences for sure. Oh, I I mean it as the highest. No, I know, I know, I know. (laughs) But, like, you can always tell what movie he saw the previous weekend where it's like... Let's just do that. Um, let's do that. Cabaret. Yeah. The wildest, do... the wildest one was I was recently reading every appearance of Manoli Weatherell for reasons. This is just things I do sometimes. I go to complete appearance list of this character <laughs> and I just read them all. And I Googled Manoli Weatherell to find that complete reading list. And guess what? Manoli Weatherell was the name of a real audio engineer at NPR who just retired, who Amazing. I guess he was friends Amazing. with. 
God bless. And so it's like, here they are in Fall of the Mutants. It's Manoli Weatherall from NPR. And I'm like, and that's such a distinctive name that I was like, where the hell did that come from? I, I program films and sometimes I'll be watching one of these old B movies and it's like, wait a minute. That's just Callisto from the Mutant Massacre. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Anyway, we're now going off course. So thank you again <laughs> for being my guest. Thank you for having me. Obviously, this was the highest pleasure. Um, it's always a pleasure spending time with you, and it's fun doing it again. And uh, I'd hope to do it more in the future. As soon as that border comes Yeah, as down. soon as I can return to Canada, <laughs> it would be nice to, to have a little... We were supposed to reunite at FlameCon, and then it was canceled. Uh, I was so sad not to get to New I York know. this year. I know, sad. Mm. Um, next year, next year at FlameCon. Next year <laughs> in FlameCon Jerusalem. <laughs> so with that, why don't you tell the listeners where they can follow you on social they probably do already since you are a twitter star <laughs> that all happened that I, all happened i was there i'm like countess luann <laughs> with skinny girl i'm like i was in the room connor actually helped me workshop in my twitter I did. Handle, which is mia koopa m-e-a-k-o-o-p-a mm-hmm. which is a terrible super mario and latin mass bun and again connor if there's there. a tortured gay catholic vibe <laughs> It's a very, it's very specifically your vibe. Um, and I'm there on most things. I'm mostly on Twitter. My Instagram is like, here's a lake I saw, uh, but I'm there too. <laughs> and do you have anything you want to plug right now that's coming out or? Um, Emperor Hulkling is still probably on your shelves and actually probably being collected soon. Yeah, get the trade. Yeah. Oh, it's so good. And Al Ewing is the, in the major story has like told a really amazing, really queer story. And I got to tell some of it. There's never a bad reason to buy an Al Ewing trade paperback. In my opinion. Absolutely. I can't wait for Sword. Hopefully some other stuff soon, but um, nothing I can say anything about just yet. Well, they can follow you if they don't already and keep track of any announcements that that come together. Let's hope for that Young Avengers thing or, hey, maybe an Iceman thing. That would also be fun (laughs) if anyone's listening. This podcast is low-key, me also just sort of becoming a studio system where I decide who should write what (laughs) characters and then having them on my podcast and saying, someone should hire you to write giant size so-and-so. Oh, I have a a Magneto story I've always wanted to do. It would be fun Uh, If you were not a goy, I would have had you on for my Magneto episode because (laughs) I know how much you love Magneto, but I think that's going to be a real... Much like I was like, I need an indigenous guest for Moonstar and a black guest for Storm. Like, I just feel like we're gonna... I don't feel Jewish enough yeah. for the Magneto episode by myself. So I feel like I'm going to need someone who's way more Jewish than I am. I've always felt that Iceman is who I am and Magneto is always who I wanted to be, you know? Like- My pin tweet used to be, I aspire to be Sailor Neptune, but I'm absolutely Sailor Venus. So I get where you're coming from. <laughs> right, right, right. So Iceman, Magneto rising. Kind no, of totally. Yeah. I get that. <laughs> you can follow Cerebro on Twitter and Instagram at Cerebrocast. You can follow me on Twitter at Dream of Organon and on Instagram at Connor Goldsmith. You can email Cerebro with your questions, comments, and feedback at Cerebrocast at gmail.com. And you can find all of the episodes as well as transcripts and visual histories of the characters as I get them done in my limited free time at Cerebrocast.com, which is the new official landing page. Thank you all again so much for 
your support. The listenership goes up every week. My analytics are now saying there's about 2,000 of you, which is crazy to me. I have listened to every single episode and I love them so much. I like literally Thanks, listen babe. to this while I'm playing Overwatch. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. I do. I, I don't expect my guests to listen to the backlog, but I know that you do because you send me comments, which I always appreciate. Oh, yeah. I always have. Oh, I'm sure. I do. <laughs> I like. I always have something to say. <laughs> well, and you know, it is always nice to receive praise from a handsome man. So uh, in any case, thanks, everybody. I'll be back next week with hopefully a special spooky Halloween episode. Ooh. But I'm still getting the guests confirmed. So no promises. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> until next time, everybody. Bye. Bye. X-Men. X-Men. In the 21st century, evil mutants led by Magneto aim to destroy the world. Only hope is... X-Men.